You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 497. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Lake Burton, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 11th of November, 2021, Veterans Day. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Put your light and he's flying by. With the airline pilot guy. In today's episode, a Russian freighter crashes and burns after attempting a go-around. A Canadian flight runs out of fuel and lands safely in a swamp. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, Operation Tarnagal. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 497 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds in New York City. You are listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast, and we cover the latest in aviation news and answer your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia, and joining me today from his hotel studio in Honolulu, Hawaii. World traveler, airplane mechanic, Breitling Cognoscenti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain. It's Miami Rick. Hello, everybody. And uh, I actually have a hula girl playing that song in my room uh, wow. right now. She must do. be off camera. Uh, I don't see... Yeah, she's off camera. It's part of the uh, standard service here in the hotel. So, uh, Has she got coconuts on? Oh yeah, she's got coconuts on, and oh, uh, oh damn. Okay, I prefer and, uh, the ones without the coconuts. And pina coladas and all sorts of good stuff. <laughs> oh man, how's everybody doing? Looking forward to this one. Yeah, fun. me too. We're gonna have fun. And also joining us from across the pond, from his studio, In professional photographer, former RAF RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330 A340 captain. For Virgin Atlantic Airways, it's Captain Nick. <laughs> You're getting way too good at that. Lovely <laughs> to see you too. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, no coconuts here. I've just got a dog between my legs. Hmm. Wow. Okay, I'm not going to touch that one. Let's uh, yeah. let's cover some <laughs> aviation <laughs> news. <laughs> FAA flags potential safety problem in the layout of controls on Boeing 767 and 757 planes. This from the Seattle Times. All right. Uh, The Federal Aviation Administration has issued a safety alert. I just mentioned that. Uh, Although the first, let's see, flagging a potential problem that led to the 2019 crash 
in Texas of an Amazon Air cargo plane and the deaths of the three pilots on board. Although the first officer flying the plane was faulted in the investigation into the crash, the alert points to a potential flaw in the way the pilot controls are laid out in the flight deck that initiated the chain of events. Crash investigators believe that the first officer inadvertently hit a switch that was too close to a handle he was holding, then reacted incorrectly. Yeah, that's the big part of this. Reacted incorrectly to the plane's sudden change in the flight mode. Just 32 seconds after the inadvertent activation of that switch, the plane slammed into the ground, killing the captain, the first officer, and a third pilot who was hitching a ride in the jump seat. On uh, February 23, 2019, uh, Atlas Air Flight 3591, a Boeing 767 cargo flight operated for and in the colors of Amazon Air, was en route from Miami to Houston when it crashed into a shallow marsh near Trinity Bay, Texas. Okay, so we all know the story, and I'm going to share this item so that uh, you all can see something that uh, Rick um, is sharing with us as well regarding that throttle quadrant, the thing that uh, they're all talking about here in this article. There we go. And uh, Rick, why don't you uh, take the con and tell us about this? Yeah, so um, see that uh, yellow arrow there's pointing towards uh, what's called a go-around paddle. And um, uh, due to the way that the throttle quadrant is configured on the 7.5 and 7.6, which basically are the same um, flight deck, uh, the only place where that uh, go-around switch could be placed was, you know, right right where it is. He, uh, the problem with that is, is that uh, under certain conditions and... Um, you know, clearly uh, the root of the uh, cause of what happened was the position of that panel. So uh, just to understand how that works a little bit, let's, let's talk about, about, let's talk about how the uh, go around system works on the 757 and 767. So during flight, just cruise flight, that paddle is inactive. So you can, you know, click it, and absolutely nothing will happen because the only way that paddle becomes alive or, or, or armed is under two conditions. The first one is you uh, intercept a glide slope with the flaps up. So regardless of flat position, you intercept a glide slope. The go-around mode will be armed, and now that paddle becomes uh, active. And then the second way is when you select the flaps out of up. Uh, basically what happens there is um, on the top screen, which is your uh, your, your ICAS, uh, engine indicating crew alert and system screen on top of your n1 uh, or eper gauges you're going to get instead of a target thrust you're going to get a uh, g slash a enunciation letting you know that that is the armed mode of the auto throttle so uh, when you hit those uh, that go around paddle uh, the auto throttle is going to advance and give you the required amount of thrust to get you a 2,000 foot per minute climb uh, on your go around. This is unlike uh, the 777s and the 74s and the 78s and all that other stuff where if you hit it once, it'll give you 2,000 feet a minute. And if you hit it a second time, it'll give you full thrust reference uh, or all the uh, available power on the engines. <clears throat> so if you look at it, um, right next to that, to the left of that, is the speed brake handle. And so if we go back and read the uh, report, and uh, we all know the story, uh, he was handling the speed brake lever, 
the flaps were in the one position. And um, as he hit uh, the flight level change mode button on the autopilot, the thrust levers came back. And, you know, clearly what, well, no, not clearly, but we all assumed that what happened was that as the thrust levers came back and his hand was there, he may have hit the paddles that way, which caused the thrust levers to go up and uh, attempt to give you, to give them that 2,000 foot per minute climb, which is what the system's designed to do. Um, keep in mind that the seventh, uh, 767 really um, came out in 1981, and this is the first time that uh, this has ever been a problem. And so to me, that this has less to do, or really nothing to do with the position of the Goron paddles, and I think uh, everything to do with the reason why that FO was in that seat in the first place. And that is really all I have to say about that. Uh, John Jester makes a good comment here in our live audience. Bingo. Why did he use flaps one 40 plus miles out with no speed restriction? Exactly. And you know what? And, and I've had, I've had FOs um, request uh, flaps one when you are, you know, <laughs> you're still being vectored around. You have, you know, 40 track miles to go. And I'm going, well, what, what's, I mean, what's the point of that? Um, there are, con there are certain reasons why at, <laughs> well, not roof. I can see why you would use flaps, try to configure early. Um, if you're high, well, it, the, the, the flat crew training manual does say to not use flaps as a, um, as a, uh, device to increase your rate of descent. Uh, and, um, Whenever FOs request a flaps one uh, as a thing that I do is I always remind them, hey, just be careful with the speed brake handle because, you know, now the go around pedals are armed. And so try to, you know, stay away from those. Now, um, usually on, you know, the seven sixes and seven fives and seven fours and triple sevens, um, once you get comfortable and conditions permitting, you really don't need to start configuring outside of 15 16, 17 miles, because uh, keep in mind that when you start configuring, uh, your fuel consumption goes up. And so to the, the idea here to try to keep the airplane uh, clean as long as possible, also um, at average uh, landing weights, uh, your uh, speed uh, for a flap one is going to be around 220 knots. So anything below 220 knots, uh, you're going to start to you know, need flaps for that to, to fly below those speeds. Uh, and so there really is no reason <laughs> to uh, uh, start calling for flaps too far out. Uh, so I don't, uh, you know, if you have to also, you know, just remember that uh, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these pilots that, uh, you know, the, the, sometimes this is their, their first heavy jet. And so, um, uh, they tend to want to be a bit more conservative in the way they configure because it's a big jet and it's got a lot of inertia and, you know, you have to plan ahead. But uh, there's a difference between planning ahead and uh, you know, starting to configure halfway through the flight. And so uh, when that's the case, you know, as a captain, um, you know, you have to kind of mentor and, uh, you know, give them uh, another, uh, I guess, point of view as to how to manage the energy of the aircraft to get you to that stabilized uh, gate by a thousand feet. So, yeah. 
Guys, I'm not too familiar with the FAA safety alert. What does it actually mean for the aircraft, for the manufacturer and the airlines when they do that? What does everyone have to do? Uh, I mean, I, I guess in the, I guess in this case, just be aware that that is a uh, that is a uh, a potential threat. Um, so they're like just I reminding people uh, when you're there training pilots that to make a point of it, something that has probably been going on since the aircraft came into service, and um, you know, just amplifying that. Yeah, you've got to be aware of this. Yeah, I mean, right? it's yeah, that's that's what I gather, Nick. And I think that I mean, the, the aircraft was certified like this, you know, forty years ago, yeah. and this is the first instance that this has become that this has you know been a problem. This is the first instance of this being the root cause of a whole loss, you know. So uh, yeah, I, all all you can really do is just, I guess, you know, bring that. Uh, Bring that to the attention of the operating crews and, uh, and and keep this from happening again by educating people and making them aware that this is a potential threat. So, yeah. I th I think that what your uh, your point I think is that well why do we have to go and do this knee jerk reaction and put out this thing when everybody already should be aware of the of the of the risk of the positioning of this uh, this switch yeah kind of because they're not going to suddenly read redesign the throttle quadrant of every one of those aircraft are they so no and then the, the only way to mitigate this really is yeah. through training and and most sensible uh, airlines it's going to be a well-known factor and already be in their training mm -hmm. and physically in the throttle quadrant itself there's really no other place to put it uh the, so the the the, the way that the the thrust levers are uh, configured on the on the old uh, you know seven five seven sixes 200s and 300s doesn't apply to the 400 because the 767-400 the thrust lever quadrant to the 400 is um identical to that of the 777 where the go around switches are just ahead of the of the uh i guess the 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 thrust lever handles uh very much like uh the 74 and the 777 and the 78 have on the on the on the dash 300 the only place where you can have it is right there as a thumb yeah, uh, thumb enough. paddle so the one on the left uh, it's for the captain's thumb, and then yeah. there is an identical paddle on the right thrust lever for the first officer's uh, 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 left thumb that, that he would activate that way. So um, that's the only place where you can put it. Yeah. I mean, I've been in the situation where we've done an inadvertent uh, go-around selection mm -hmm. in the Airbus, and because, you know, it happens both in the simulator every now and again and in the air for real every now and again, we're fairly well practiced at getting back out of that and reestablishing the approach. And mm -hmm. that, for me, the fact that the guy hit the paddle isn't the important bit. It's what happened afterwards. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Right. His reaction to the mistake. Yes, yeah, because we, we, all, we all make mistakes and yeah. no cockpit is perfect. Uh, it's how you recover from those mistakes. The fact that you almost anticipate that at some point you're going to do something a little bit wrong and you're alert to that and how you deal with it when it happens. Exactly. Exactly right. Well, let's move on. Uh, next item uh, from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Boeing deals with new Dreamliner defect amid production problems. 
The finding is fresh evidence that the plane maker is still trying to fix its manufacturing operations. Despite a nearly two-year push by Chief Executive David Calhoun to restore Boeing's reputation for building quality jets. In addition, the Federal Aviation Administration is investigating Boeing's quality controls. The company acknowledged it hasn't solved the problem of junk left over from the production process, such as two empty tequila mini bottles found in September on a new Air Force One jet under construction. It's better than two full ones. I was, you know, when we originally covered that one, I thought they, when they said they found two tequila bottles, I thought like regular size tequila bottles. Yes, I did too. Just two lick minis, you know, no big deal. Work and play. Yeah. Anyway, a Boeing spokesman said the company is making progress on improving production and is raising its own standards despite operational interruptions. We've strengthened our focus on quality and constantly encourage all members of our team and supply chain to raise any issues that need attention, the spokesman said. When issues are raised, that's an indication that these efforts are working. He added, we're upping our standards, up yours. Um, No, he didn't say that. Actually, I added that last part. Um, Boeing has faced a host of production issues over the past couple of years that along with the two 737 MAX crashes in late 2018 and early 2019 have prompted U.S. air safety regulators to ratchet up oversight. The predicament feeds itself, according to people close to the company. Over the past two years, Boeing engineers and regulators have been looking for problems, looking for problems. Yeah, that's probably not a good thing either. New issues that are found invite more scrutiny, adding more things to fix. Yeah, vicious circle. Yeah, wasn't the uh, wasn't the uh, the um, uh, the the Max uh, uh, seven thirty seven Max? Uh, I guess uh, chief pilot program pilot wasn't he just indicted. I think so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's uh, yeah. Man, I mean, it's uh, I don't know. I mean, these these you, you know how I feel about Boeing. I've always been a Boeing fan and all that. I mean, these people need no. to get their act together because uh, you Boeing? <laughs> no, <laughs> didn't know that. A little bit. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, you're talking about, uh, I mean, this is, this is the company that, uh, that, you know, that, uh, that manufactured the first stage in the Saturn V rock and it got us to the moon. I mean, you, I mean, it's just, come on, get, uh, get your act together, people. Yeah. They're also the company that, um, is trying to do a new rocket as well. And it's not going very well. Oh, no, 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 not, not well at all. Actually. Yeah. They're a little behind. Yeah. Not the Boeing of old, but they're trying to turn things around and make it a leader out there in uh, engineering and such, but in quality products. Anyway, so there you go. There's uh, the item regarding the uh, Dreamliner uh, defect and production problems. We'll keep on moving along quickly. Uh, This is an incident, this next item, and this is from Mentor Pilot. And, wow, I'm going to try to say the author's name here of this article, Spyros Georgilidakis. Georgilidakis. I don't know. Nailed it. Yes. Uh, An Avianca Airbus A320 suffered a very hard impact during landing in Colombia. So severe that it it has not returned to service 20 days later. Ouch. This event happened on the 8th of October. The aircraft was operating out of... mm, Ibagé? Ibagé. Ibagé Airport, mm-hmm. uh, Sierra Kilo, India, Bravo, in Colombia. This was a test flight, so it only had the flight crew on board. However, the flight wasn't testing the aircraft itself. Rather, authorities described it as 
a first airline operational check flight to validate a new approach procedure. I guess it failed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it didn't go very well. Ibage <laughs> Airport has a single runway just over 1,800 meters long, which is 5,906 feet long, approximately. Well, it's a little tight, isn't it? Yes, yeah, not long, long. Uh, the Avianca A320 appears to have taken off using runway 14. It then seems to have made either a low pass or a touch and go on the same runway. The crew then appears to have set up an approach for runway 32. And according to available reports, the new approach procedure involved this runway. According to FlightAware, the Avianca A320 crew made a single touch-and-go attempt on runway 32. They then climbed away, leveling off initially at 8,000 feet, then at 12. After staying in a hold for some time, the crew eventually flew their aircraft to Bogota, Sierra Kilo Bravo Oscar, landing on runway 13 right. According to the authorities, the crew's original plan was to return to Ibagué for a full-stop landing. Authorities later reported that during its approach to runway 32, the Avianca A320 suffered an acceleration of 4.9 Gs, almost 5 Gs. That's solid, firm. We don't know any further details about the flight or the new approach procedure that the Avianca crew was testing, uh, so it's not possible to know if the procedure itself contributed to the incident. What they did report is that now the uh, the uh, there's uh, two potholes on the uh, arrival <laughs> yes. end of a runway three two that uh, yeah. perfectly match the, the main landing gear and Airbus A320. And they've decided that vertical landing is probably not <laughs> appropriate for this no, aircraft. No, the ten degree uh, glide path is just really yes. nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fellas, 10 degrees is not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> Go back to the drawing board. <laughs> Approach crew. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Yikes. What else to say about yeah, that? that? Uh, not a lot. I, I'd be interested to see what they had in the box. That, that you know. That what do you mean? Been, uh, a good clue. To, uh, you know, uh, whether they had an anomaly in the programming of the approach that suddenly steepened the approach at short finals or something, you know. Oh. So I, I'm just, I would love to see, to see what the data was. In, but in I imagine at some point they're just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's their, you know, approach validation and it doesn't sound like it's, it was an ILS. So I just, at some point you just click the thing off and just follow the pappy down or something. Or I mean, mm -hmm. well, I'm assuming it's an RNAV, they were doing an RNAV approach. I, I'm guessing they're doing an RNAV approach yeah, if, I, I, if they're I, setting I, it up. I agree. Mm -hmm. And I guess they wanted to follow it through to the decision altitude. Uh, yeah. And perhaps it set them up in a really difficult position and they were trying to work it out. Oh, oh I know what happened. Uh, so uh, I think uh, when you're flying RNAV approaches, the uh, flare mode does not arm itself. So uh, mm. I think uh, you need to flare manually. That may have been it. Are you, are you joking or are you serious about that? <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell, honestly. <laughs> uh, about that poker face. It was an Airbus. Oh, that, that's what no, I expected Rick wow. to say. Uh, I thought Rick was going to say, well, the problem here is that uh, they were flying it in an Airbus. <laughs> A little disappointed that you didn't come up with that. I know. Conclusion. I know. I know. It's, uh, it's early here in Hawaii. Anyway. Yeah. It, I'm very impressed that the airplane was able to fly away after yeah, doing, me too. Yeah. doing 4.8 and 4.9 G. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Now, is it? I, I remember um, uh, So back when I was a mechanic in Miami, uh, I never actually worked on Airbuses 
thank goodness. But I remember, um, you know, we're, <laughs> uh, you know, going and seeing friends that did do line maintenance for uh, the airline there was called uh, Taka, T-A-C-A. I think they're still around. Um, and uh, one of my um, buddies was an engineer on the 318, uh, 319, 320 fleets. And uh, every time the crew would shut the aircraft down, the printer would spit out a printout. Either it would do it either automatically, or or the or the engineer would call um, for that uh, printout to happen, and uh, and in there you would see the um, the, the G forces on landing. And is that something that uh, that happens automatically, uh, Nick, or is that? Is that oh yeah. That, uh, yeah, yeah. There there are all sorts of limitations that will be flagged and will uh, occur in the post-flight report. Um, and um, in particular, if you do a heavy landing, it'll always generate a report 15, uh, which is the heavy landing report. So, uh, you know, and all the data will be there for the engineers to look at. Yeah, because the flight crew to worry about. <laughs> Just out yeah. of curiosity, what's the normal, uh, like, G-force or G-level for a, a regular landing? I don't know, 1.5, 1.3, something. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you, you, so you're, you're, I mean. Uh, if I'm yeah, doing it, it'll yeah, be 1.0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 1. If I'm landing, <laughs> vertical speed is zero. But, uh, no, I'm just <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, we're on the runway. I didn't even know it. I, I didn't feel <laughs> yeah, it. Oh, right. I guess I'm going to have to. That is so smooth. The weight on wheel switches are exactly. activated. I'll do it manually here. <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, you, I mean, you talk about it. Like you're coming in at what? Yeah, seven, seven hundred, eight hundred feet a minute, and then by the time you come in and flare, the ideally, you know, you have to touch down to hopefully south of three hundred. 200 feet a minute, you know, and if you're, you know, if you're, if you're good, 150, 100 feet a minute, that's, that's a nice touchdown. And it's, uh, it's uh, on Boeing's is a little bit more, um, I guess, open to interpretation because, uh, well, you can call up the landing report. I used to know how to do it on the triple seven, the seven, four. I, I don't know, uh, if, if I can access that information on the seven sixes, uh, uh, there is a device on all airplanes of Boeing's at least there's, it's called the, um, uh, the, FAU, the Digital Flight Acquisition Unit. Uh, it's basically the uh, what um, uh, sends data over to the uh, flight data recorder. Well, one of the one of the outlets goes to the flight data recorder, and so you can call that information up there. Um, but uh, uh, the manual says that uh, if you think that the landing was hard, then write it down on the book. But it, uh, <laughs> but it. Uh, it's a it's it's kind of subjective because it's really uh, left uh, left to the judgment of the flight crew uh, whether the 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 landing was hard or not and uh, flight crew's gonna be like well that was that was firm but not hard but uh, I guess later on down the road uh, when they clear up the quick access recorder and all the data they'll uh, if you get a call then you know it was a hard landing yeah that's so, not good yeah that's not good I, they're probably not calling to say you know what that landing was so was smooth it didn't even so register. Perfect. <laughs> and we just wanted yeah. to thank you for that. Yeah, that never happens. No, and talking about uh, uh, vertical speeds, uh, zero vertical speeds at landing. Actually, that did happen, and it was uh, it was. I know of one one case where that's happened, and not in an airplane, but on the space shuttle. Hood Gibson was a commander of. Um, I forget what the SDS mission was. He he boasts and he has the record for, for having the only zero vertical speed landing on a space shuttle. Ooh. Uh, he was a former uh, F-14 pilot and flew for Southwest before uh, retiring for good. So, oh, uh, yeah, it has that. happened. Yeah. 
All right. Um, let's see. Neville is saying there was a Canadian captain that used to fly for British Midland that would absolutely grease every landing he did, much to the disgust of the ATCers, as he used used up most of the twelve thousand foot runway at Heathrow. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's something called like touchdown in the touchdown zone exactly. that we're required to do, and uh, you know, if you have enough runway, you know, it's possible to you know, pretty consistently really roll it on. But, and and that's another thing. That's a good point, Neville, actually. So there is another um, parameter that the digital flight data acquisition unit uh, takes into account. And that is, so the touchdown zone, the the runways touchdown zone is codified into the system by uh, GPS position coordinates. Mm -hmm. And so if the, position of the aircraft, the GPS position of the aircraft is outside of the GPS position of the touchdown zone for a particular runway, that qualifies as a deep landing. And that will also um, uh, generate an alert and a flag. And one of the reasons why you are supposed to go around, doesn't matter how long the runway is, is if you're going to have, you know, in fact, a, a what's called a, a long landing. And another, po- another problem with trying to grease the aircraft onto the runway uh, is that at some point, I mean, yeah, you're going to be in ground effect, which is great. But at some point uh, you're basically going to run out of airspeed and you just, and the bottom's going to fall out. Yep. And that's another problem. Uh, it's uh, on, yep. particularly in the 767. And you, if you try holding the nose up, so let's say you land and you try holding the nose up off the ground to try to bring the nose down as, as, as smoothly as possible at about 120 knots airspeed, the stabilizer runs out of authority and then the nose slams down. So yeah. you got you know, it's yeah. Everybody likes a soft landing, a smooth landing, but it's about getting it down safely, <laughs> and that's really all that matters, you know. So yeah, absolutely. You mess, In uh, get, the six hundred, yeah. if we uh, we try to hold it off too long, you just built up too much nose attitude, and you bang the tail on. Being such a long airplane, the A three twenty one would be similar for that. And of course, if you got uh, a, a very wet runway, it's the last thing you want to do because you're just encouraging the tires to hydroplane, and then you're going to have exactly. problems down the road. Exactly right. All right. Good discussion. Uh, let's continue with our next news item. And from the Aviation Herald, a Grodno Avia Compania Antonov AN-12BK registration Echo Whiskey 518 Tango India performing a freight flight from Yakutsk to Irkutsk, Russia. They sound very similar, at least the way I'm pronouncing it. Sounds like we're playing a game of risk. Yeah. (laughs) With seven crew and cargo consisting of food and consumer goods, was on approach to Irkutsk, runway 30, when the crew initiated a go-around due to weather at about 240 meters, 790 feet AGL, about two nautical miles before the runway threshold. Shortly afterwards, the radar and radio contact was lost at 1945 local time. The aircraft was subsequently found crashed and burning about 1.7 nautical miles east-southeast of the runway 30 threshold, in, or, which is short of the runway, in the village of Pivavarika. I don't know. Pivavarika. All seven crew perished in the crash. On November 4th, 2021 ATC representatives reported within three to four seconds after the crew announcing the go-around, the 
Altitude indication of the aircraft changed from 240 to about 120 meters AGL. Then the aircraft tag disappeared from the screen. Hmm. Doesn't sound like they made any attempt to actually climb. Or maybe they did make an attempt, but the airplane wasn't climbing. It was continuing downward. The Interstate Aviation Committee, MAK, reported that the aircraft carried seven people. Well, we already knew that. Um, both black boxes have been located. On November 4th, it became known that according to the load manifest by Gorodno Airlines, there were nine people on board of the aircraft. Okay. They're still trying to sort out how many people were on board. Um, Russian media indicate... Uh, investigators are looking into possible theories of icing of the elevator slash horizontal stabilizer causing loss of control as a result of freezing rain at the time. Uh, the uh, Oh, you know what? I was supposed to share this, and I never did. Here we go. As um, Here's some METAR readings around the time, the bold uh, METAR there. Uh, looks like the, uh, there was heavy snow showers. Uh, uh, beach weather. How about that? Yeah, 600 overcast uh, cumulonimbus snow showers. Hey, maybe, what do they call that? Um, snow lightning? Snow thunder? Thunder snow. That's it. Um, minus seven, <laughs> minus eight. And uh, anyway, so looks like some... Look that, but look, look at that RVR. It's got, uh, what, 1,600 meters. That's, uh, Wow. It's, it's not a lot. No, it's interesting it's weather pretty, conditions. Pretty bad disability, yeah. Pretty pretty saturated, mm-hmm. and uh, no, basically no visibility. Wow, heavy snow showers too. So uh, definitely IMC when they went around. Yeah, here's mm-hmm. a picture of the uh, crash scene, and you can see that it's still snowing pretty heavily at the time. And uh, here's another one, and then of course here's the uh, Google Earth image uh, showing the runway 30 uh, approach end and the approximate position uh, that uh, the airplane was uh, finally uh, finally came to rest um, 1.7 nautical miles uh, from the runway threshold uh, I'm wondering if um, if they thought that they were in the middle of a go-around procedure and they weren't double checking that the go around was actually initiated in the airplane. Maybe the power came up and they just, nobody made sure that the pitch of the airplane was coming up and it was climbing and they just slammed right into the ground. I don't know. Yeah. Which is weird because what I've noticed on these, um, on these, um, uh, former Soviet, uh, now Russian, uh, transport category airplanes is that you have, um, both pilots. I don't know who the one that is, you know, manipulating the flight controls is because you have, usually you have, you see both of them with their hands on the controls. Neither one has their hand on the, you know, the thrust levers or the, the power levers. You always have, I guess, the flight engineer sitting between the two pilots that handles the, um, the power for the airplane. So, um, um, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that, uh, maybe go around power wasn't set properly. Uh, I can see where, um, obviously the, uh, the, the weather conditions, uh, I guess, and, and particularly the, uh, the presence of icing could be a, uh, a potential cause for this. Um, and, uh, as we talked about in the last piece of feedback here, obviously the, um, uh, horizontal stabilizer and elevator authority is, um, crucial in the execution of a, uh, go around because that is your main, 
your only um, pitch control. And so if you lose that, then uh, it doesn't matter how much power you have on, then you're just not going to climb. So it's going to be interesting to see how this uh, develops. And being a transport category aircraft, I mean, I would imagine that the anti-icing um, systems on the airplane are somewhat capable of, you know, handling in-flight icing. But uh, maybe it was so bad that it wasn't, it just, it was overwhelmed, perhaps. I don't know. Um, yeah, that's another thing. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know of any airplane that has um, uh, leading edge uh, anti-eyes or de-eyes for the uh, horizontal stabilizer. Uh, you know, many airplanes, all, you know, all, all airplanes, transport category have it. Leading edge uh, uh, anti-eyes uh, for the uh, leading edges, uh, but not uh, uh, of the of the wings. You know, the main wings, but not for the uh, horizontal stabilizer. So. I, at least, at least, I don't know of anyone. Yeah, all the, with the exception of the L ten eleven, every transport category aircraft that I've flown has been a T tail, and every T tail I think that I've flown has had um, leading edge horizontal stabilizer de icing. Yeah, tail, well, there you go. I've never flown a T tail. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, wow. Yeah. How about that. All right. Well, yes. Uh, I was just going to say it's a pretty old airplane. 1959, mm-hmm. it was uh, first developed. It's it's a bit of a workhorse, but uh, you know, um, you'd have thought they would have been well aware if it had any significant uh, tailplane icing um, faults or the likelihood of it, because after all, Russia is a place renowned for its w- winter weather. Yes. That is true. Absolutely. That's why I'm running. So, I don't know. That's why I'm wondering if this was just a, a crew error. I mean, a, a pilot error of just not ensuring that yeah. the airplane was indeed actually, you know, making a trajectory upward away from the ground. Well, yeah. we've seen plenty of um, uh, people. We've just talked about a somatic uh, illusion um, mm-hmm. where acceleration makes you feel like you're pitching up. Uh, and in a go-around, uh, you know, it's it's possible that they could have pushed forward rather than pulling yep. back. Yeah. Uh, uh, or or not or not pull back enough. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. Uh, yeah, and and by looking at the weather, there were certainly on uh, in the IMC yeah. conditions. I forget. I, I'm trying to see what the ceiling was here. Oh, overcast at uh, six hundred oh, yeah. to seven hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Oh yeah. So they're IMC. They're IMC all all the way. Yeah. I mean, they were dead in line with the runway when they went in. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking perhaps it's unlikely it was an engine problem because they would have yeah. probably perhaps turned a little bit if they yeah. were having trouble controlling after an engine failure. Uh, yeah, I, I guess we're going to find out. We will. Because uh, the Russian authorities are pretty good at making sure that these reports come out. Although I got a direct line yeah. with those guys. They, uh, oh, Liz says that she has a direct line with them. Yeah, and uh, oh, yeah. updates every day. Okay, good. Oh, they're sending Liz updates every day. Wow, I didn't know she was so <laughs> on it with a bottle of Kremlin over there. <laughs> All right, next item uh, from the Aviation Herald. Another guy, Simon. He's uh, pretty much on top of these things too. Not quite as much as Liz, but nope. yeah. Anyway, uh, he can only hope. Yeah, he can only hope. Tindy, I'm guessing uh, DHC six uh, near. Fort Providence. Uh, let's see. Was it Air Tindy? Is, is that right, Liz? Do you have you ever heard of this airline? I believe so. Uh, yeah. I, okay. This is, I don't know. 
De Havilland DHC 6300 registration, Charlie Golf November Papa Sierra performing flight 223 from Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, to Fort Simpson, Northwest Territories, in Canada, with three passengers and two crew, uh, was en route about 40 minutes into the flight when the crew decided to divert to Fort Providence, Northwest Territories, due to lack of fuel. The aircraft aircraft was unable to reach the airport and was forced to land about 7.5 nautical miles northwest of the aerodrome. There were no injuries to passengers and crew. The TSB reported the passengers and crew were recovered about eight hours after the forced landing. The occurrence was rated an accident and a class three investigation has been opened. Uh, Yes, Liz. And I'm sure that the weather was really, really nice. Um, And, uh, oh, nice probably not. Not yeah, not a warm swamp at all, probably. The company reported the aircraft ran out of fuel. Yeah. The crew reported a malfunction of the aircraft while still airborne. Yeah, the engines aren't working for some reason. And, uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> let's Tanks see. are empty. We've had a malfunction. Uh, let's see. The volunteer air firefighting, excuse me, the volunteer firefighting department of Fort Providence reported the aircraft looked fairly intact, commenting a normal aircraft had landed in a swamp. The aircraft came to rest in swampland covered by a couple of inches of ice, which broke under the aircraft. The water was about two feet deep. They were able to walk to the aircraft, though, and take the occupants to safety in night conditions across the swamp, reassuring the occupants there was hot coffee and warmth awaiting them. How nice. That was very nice. So, yeah, not great condition, But, hey, you know, it could have been a lot worse. Uh, they, they could have crashed and nobody survived this thing but it just begs oh, the question wonder what happened here did they miss uh miss the fact that they didn't have enough fuel to begin with when they departed i don't know i mean well, it's I'm, a, I'm hoping that their malfunction was a fuel leak hmm. and they realized that and tried to divert and didn't quite make it that would be you know a great kind of indication of the crew on the ball but uh, mm-hmm. there's no guarantee it was that there have been plenty of airplanes where the crew have either mistakenly or just through uh forgetting uh, that they've got a, a long leg to do not put on sufficient fuel or not put on any fuel at all so yeah ouch mm-hmm. if, if that's the case that's a real shame yeah yes. and uh this this is a this is a twin otter right dh6 mm-hmm. yeah DHC6? Yeah, I think so. I, I wonder, well, so if Steph was here, she'd probably be able to chime in on this, but uh, um, maybe there's an issue, there was an issue with the uh, fuel indicating system. I don't know if, uh, yeah. uh, how that works here as well. So, uh, or, uh, as, as Nick was saying, uh, maybe conditions en route were, uh, you know, uh, winds weren't as favorable as they thought it, they'd be. Um, uh, so, I don't know. Yeah. It's, uh, but the thing here is that, uh, yeah, run out of fuel and that's not a good look. Well, you know, thankfully, everybody, yeah, uh, walked away from this one but it could have been a lot worse yeah i'm hoping on these aircraft they do a double check now they don't just look at the fuel gauge they also <laughs> compare the numbers of the fuel they've got remaining with the fuel they've put in and done a, a, a double check that way because uh, you know yeah and it's, uh, it's fail. exactly and it's interesting here because you know when, when you when you fuel airplanes you know, especially you know bigger bigger airplanes it's it's not like um it's not like little you know uh, GA airplanes where you you know you you put in uh, a certain amount of uh, fuel uh, in each tank and uh, you just look down to make sure that you're that you're good as far as fuel um, supply is concerned. Uh, when you when you talk about larger quantities of fuel, uh, you have to 
convert that volume into weight using a number called uh, the specific gravity. And that's a very, very um, uh, important calculation um, because uh, if you use the wrong conversion and you don't, uh, <laughs> and you end up with less fuel than, or, or you use the wrong unit, as 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 we all know happened in that Air Canada, the Gimli uh, Gimli glider flight. Oh, that's right. Yep. You know, then you can uh, you, then you could end up uh, very very short indeed. And so it's very important to make sure that you're using not only the right unit, but the right um, specific gravity conversion number. And uh, and then again, as the pilot in command of the aircraft, it is your responsibility. And that is, and every airline's flight operating manual says that the captain's responsible to make sure that the correct uh, amount of fuel, the fuel figure is on board for the um, safe operation of the aircraft. And it's in fact, in our checklist, our uh, before start checklist, uh, you uh, um, you compare your um, planned fuel required versus what's indicated, and, uh, and then you're off on your way there. So, and yeah. regardless, they should have had 30 minutes extra uh, Absolutely, for their right. final reserve, which hmm. would have gotten there if they <laughs> had well, enough. Let's face it, Canada, a Canadian pilot, Canadians <laughs> don't really do well with fuel issues right yeah. you know the gimli no, got well, they have a history the air transat uh a uh, 330 uh yeah. that barely Very made true. it to the azores you know come on yeah. you know yeah. i'm just yeah. i'm just saying yeah. 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 how many times she ran out of fuel in her car <laughs> i don't know well, yeah. I to be an <laughs> well she said that she happens to be an exception she she's a, she is exceptional oh, okay uh, you know, I, I, I have a, I have a, I think that the uh, the Canadian flag should uh, switch out its uh, maple for a uh, for a uh, fuel pump or you know one of those uh, gasoline pumps. <laughs> yeah, right there, there in the middle, in the center of the flag. There, at, uh, <laughs> the ground, the ground. Oh, we were just having fun with Canadians because just we love kidding. them so just much. Kidding. Yeah. All right. I do. I do too. Hey, <laughs> this next item here uh, is an interesting video uh, from Vass Aviation that I thought it would be interesting to cover on the show. So let's do that. What do you think? Let's do it. Fast Aviation. Real Aviation Communications. Traffic on a four mile final three five, additional traffic crossing downfield. Uh oh. <laughs> uh -oh. What happened? There? Well, I don't, this is not a special effect that uh, I have introduced. Oh, I thought it, it just suddenly got foggy. Yeah, that's no, what I'm no. thinking. Okay, wait a minute. What? Why did it do that? I guess the, the app that I was using to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, what, what's the uh, word I'm looking for? Uh, download the video from YouTube um, didn't do so well. Uh, let's see here. Let me see where we're taking over here. It looks like it's cleared up at this point. Heading is 080, running out of left cliff, take off, break yard 4897. Okay, just to uh, kind of go over this, uh, we have an, uh, an air airliner. Uh, I think they're both Blue Streak, right? Um, coming in for one coming in for approach on runway three five, and another one has uh, just been cleared for takeoff on runway nine left, which is not so unusual if the 
air traffic controller is, you know, like spacing this out and timing it just right. So let's continue here with the uh, with the video. Go around for the six ten. Go around and climb hard. Climb right turn, please. Right turn. Forty eight ninety seven. Maintain one thousand, please. Maintain one thousand. Check this Africa forty eight ninety seven. Very much left turn. Hard left turn. It's a turn Africa forty eight ninety seven. Blue streak. Turn the plane. We're turning. We gotta get turning at each other. The brickyard. Brickyard. Uh, make a right turn for me, dude. Right, right turn. We're breaking right. Africa forty eight ninety seven. We have to check this out. We're making a right turn. It's all my fault there, not yours. Climb and maintain 5,000 feet and go back to left heading of 080. Left heading of 080 up to 5,000, pick up 497. Blue Street 5610, maintain 3,000. Turn back left heading of uh, zero, uh, 270. 3,000, left turn 270, Blue Street 5610. Blue Street 5610, maintain uh, 3,000 feet. Let's go heading up 275 and contact approach 124.35. Bring you right back in. Sorry about that. 275, 2435, 5610. Break up 4097, contact departure, 124.35. 2435, check 4097, good night. Okay, I think that... Nope. Thought that was the end. Alright, Blue Street 5610, uh, Philadelphia approach. Clear to Philly via Radar Vector, we'll get you back in for 9 right now. Alright. Break up 4097, 3,600,5,000. Check that 335. Looks like I turned you a little early for Harlow. You still want to continue? You want me to bring you back around? Okay. Check that 335. Call the tower 185. 185. Good day. Good day. Air shuttle As uh, 5610 was vectored for another approach on 9 right, and the 4897 that was uh, taking off, they continued their flight. So it was like, climb hard, climb hard. Obviously, uh, the controller uh, didn't time it uh, and sequence it quite correctly. And then <laughs> you could hear the in the background, uh, there must be some kind of an alerting system that uh, alerts yeah. the tower cab that you know something bad is about to happen. You could hear that kind of blaring in the background, and that's when he started barking out these commands. And I think he was so excited by what was happening there, he was actually making it worse by telling them to like turn in a certain direction. He's like, "Well, you're you're turning you're turning right or whatever." And he goes, "Yeah, because that's what you told him to do." Uh, yeah, yeah. What a mess! What a mess! Oh, I, I have to say, I thought the turn, the turn probably wasn't the best idea. Uh, a go around straight ahead yeah. would have deconflicted much quicker and gained them separation by turning them right. He put them on a parallel track, and now you've got two aircraft uh, trying to climb uh, and trying to get away from each other, but they're headed in the same direction instead of separating them. Yeah. And yeah. also t turning in the middle of a go around. <laughs> yeah, you could do it, of course. So there are go-rounds that have turns in them, but it's not ideal if you're trying to go around. The initial part, really, you hope is going to be fairly straight. Yeah, it's, and I tell you, I mean, flying a go-around, it's, uh, I mean, you you do plan for it. Obviously, you brief for it. Um, but flying a go-around, particularly uh, if you're coming in to land at some point, um, you are... Uh, you know, now flying manually, so you've disconnected the autopilot or throttle, so you're coming in manually. 
And if you're instructed to go around very, very late in the approach, that means that you're going to be flying that go around manually, which means that the the, um, the workload in the flight deck is going to be very, very, very high indeed because you have one pilot flying and you have the other pilot on the uh, on the uh, on the comms and obviously hand, you know handling uh, changes to the mode control panel. Uh, navigational changes, um, uh, frequency changes, all that kind of stuff, and then, uh, uh, and then initially the um, what was the uh, initially cleared to climb just to a thousand feet? Is that what it was? Is that was that what I heard? I don't recall the exact. Um, I think that was the aircraft getting the airborne. Was it? I don't know. Yeah. Well, three. I think it was three thousand. But when I mean, you think about it, it's uh, <laughs> you get to three thousand feet on a go around like that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, so you, yeah. and you have to You're be steaming up there. Oh yeah, you have to be very <laughs> careful to not uh, to not uh, overshoot that uh, that that uh, altitude because you might have uh, crossing traffic uh, up, up up above you, and then uh, there's another conflict to deal with. It so uh, it's um, that's why usually what I'll do, uh, and this is this is just my technique. What I do is uh, I will not disconnect the autopilot. I'll just keep it coupled all the way until I know that everything is deconflicted. I've been clear to land. Everything is set to go because there is nothing worse than flying a manual go around uh, at the very, very, very late stage of the final approach. Now, this is um, uh, when when I'm flying a, a, a visual approach and it's just uh, it's just us or I know exactly what's going on and I know the guy that's uh, landed before me, he's off the runway and there's no other potential uh, uh, conflicts, then yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll click everything off a little uh, a little earlier, and you know, have a little bit of fun in hand fly. But uh, as 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 technique, well, that's that's what I do. I'll keep everything on as long as possible until I know everything's deconflicted, and then I land. Okay, so that begs the question: Was everything deconflicted um, at that point? And I, I know that most of the blame here goes to the controller, and he even admitted that it was his fault. But I think some of the blame goes to both pilot crews. Because you have to maintain situational awareness. And if you're coming in to land on 3-5 and then all of a sudden, you know, you miss the fact that he's just cleared somebody for takeoff and unleft, you should be looking out there and seeing where that airplane is rolling down the runway. And if it's going to actually work out the way the controller thinks it's going to work out. And in this case, no, it didn't. And same thing goes for the one that was rolling for takeoff. He should have been paying attention to the fact that there's an airplane out there coming in. And on a perpendicular runway, landing in front of them, and again, I, I, can't, I can't let these airline crews off the hook here for not seeing that this is a situation that could develop and be a, a bad situation. I agree. And the question is going to come up: Where, well, what what happens if you're if you're IMC? What happens if you're in the soup and you can't you can't look outside? Well. Um, we have a when we've talked about this many many times. We have a a, a system on board that works off of the transponder called the TCATS Traffic Collision Avoidance System. And so, whether you are IMC or VMC, the position of aircraft in your immediate vicinity is going to show up on your navigation display. And as part of the before takeoff checklist, aircraft on the ground will turn their transponder to TARA, which stands for Traffic Advisory Resolution Advisory, which will make your target show up on airborne aircraft um, uh, NDs as well. And so uh, everybody can see everybody else, whether it's VMC, visual conditions, or instrument conditions. And so I agree with you completely, Jeff. I mean, they, there should have been a bit more uh, uh, more situational awareness on the, on the part of the crews as well, and that would have de- de- deconflicted everything, yeah. 
Yeah, no, Dale and our uh, live audience is saying, you know, well, what was the weather doing? And, and honestly, I don't think we have that information in this uh, live ATC clip that we're listening to here. I'm not sure what the, you know, if it was IMC or VMC um, when this when this occurred. Uh, but, but still, as, as Rick mentioned, we do have systems, even if we're IMC, to uh, that allow us to see, you know, perhaps a, a developing situation. Now, uh, the chances are the airplane coming in on approach to 3-5, wouldn't have seen if they're still an IMC. They're not going to see the airplane on nine left rolling for takeoff. But again, they'll they they should have heard that and maybe going through their minds, going, "Is this going to work out?" Oh yeah, well the controller knows what he's doing, I guess. Um, speaking of controllers, um, I was having a conversation with a professional air traffic controller that uh, many of us know, and uh, I just discussed with him that that uh, video or the uh, situation incident at a Reno with the Delta jet and the Southwest jet. And then I kind of gave him a link to this one and said, what do you think of this? And he said, that one is worse, conflicting instructions and just another mess. Hard to watch. So ah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. We all have bad days. Yeah, we do. We yeah. do. We're all humans. And that's why we have systems to help us out. But again, you know, yeah. you can't just rely completely and trust completely. Uh, you know, controllers are going to be making all the correct decisions all the time. You have to kind of have your your uh, awareness up to a pretty high level, you know, to yeah. keep. Yeah, and, and as 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 you were dis- we were discussing just now, and if 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 you bring that up to the controller, and the controller uh, you know realizes that he you know is in fact in the wrong, he's going to be you know you're actually helping him out as well mm-hmm. because you know you're 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 you're. Uh, you're ahead of the game here and trying to uh, in, in trying to deconflict a situation that if left to continue on its um, you know current trajectory could you know you know be you know, you know end up in a you know it, it could be a, a, a fatal incident which yeah. is uh, obviously what nobody wants so, or like uh, the uh, the incident with the Delta jet in the southwest at Reno uh, you know the Delta guy said well how's this gonna work <laughs> So he was aware that this was not working out. But in this case, uh, nobody seemed to uh, be, again, it's not really totally fair for us because we. I'm assuming in my head that the, the it's visual conditions out. But maybe it wasn't. Maybe these were real instrument approaches and, you know, they couldn't see the other airplanes. I don't know. Which, uh, which you know what, if, if, if conditions were IMC. Why would they be would operating like this? I think. Right? that they'd be a bit more conservative because uh, I was, so the other day I, I was going into Ontario and uh, the RVR was uh, just, just 800, just an RVR 800. So it's, it's basically no visibility. Uh, and um, the, the, the minimums for category three approach in Ontario is RVR six, which is just RVR eight. So just, just over the, just over the minimums there. And keeping in mind that you're coming in and actually going to have to fly a, you know, you know, a notion. I mean, I was about to curse a no there. kidding, an actual, <laughs> a no kidding Autoland. Yeah. <laughs> um, I uh, I configured the airplane a bit more conservatively because one, I need to make sure that I am very very stable a little bit earlier than I otherwise would be because this is going to be a an actual Autoland one. Number two, there was a there was a FedEx seven five that was ahead of me and I needed him off the runway. Uh, for me to be able to land on that auto land because I can't have somebody in front of me and in the eyeless critical area. 
And so um, I, you know, I, I slowed the aircraft down, you know, earlier and configured uh, configured earlier than I otherwise would because of the very, very conditions here. So I don't imagine that uh, the controller would have played um, or um, planned and uh, sequenced these aircraft so closely if conditions were in fact a imc because it uh you know i I don't see that happening i don't know i don't know but you would think that if conditions are imc whether conditions are not good the controller would um you know played a bit more conservatively yeah normally if you're going to be cleared for a takeoff on a crossing runway like that with one on finals uh, in my experience the controller usually tells you or reminds you that there is one on short finals runway zero nine or whatever mm-hmm. because he doesn't want you to mess about he, he's timing this and if you take a long time to spool up and then mess about he doesn't want to create a a, um, a condition where the collision was cut i noticed that hadn't happened the I, I don't know whether the controller had just missed the fact that this bloke was still on short finals and uh, cleared the other one for takeoff without thinking about it that's what i think happened yeah so I, I, I mean, we we'd love to have been commending whichever crew it was that spotted the problem, but out of all three, the two crews and the air traffic, had nobody picked it up till it was too late. Thank God for the computer. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, that screaming in the background there. Absolutely. Like, got his, yeah. I think that probably startled him so much. That's why he was starting to give inaccurate or inappropriate instructions for the uh, the guy going around on uh, three five. You see, this would have come in very, very handy back in, uh, when was it, uh, the early 90s, I think it was, uh, in L.A., when that 73 landed on top of that uh, that uh, Metro liner. And, mm-hmm. uh, oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah, so, uh, it, uh, you know, everybody has Tragic. bad days. Problem is that uh, when controllers and pilots have bad days, and if you don't catch it early enough, uh, things can uh, be disastrous. get very bad. Very quickly, yes. Neville sir. asks Rick, uh, when you're doing an auto land, would you make the controller aware so that they would ensure a protected ILS? Well, in this case, in, in Rick's condition or uh, situation, obviously with the weather conditions as such, they that's the only way you could possibly get in was, would be to exactly right. category three auto land approach. Yeah. Exactly right. And so uh, uh, Ontario International has got two, uh, two east-west runways, two six left and two six right. And then the only runway that's cat three equipped is uh runway two six left and obviously uh the fact that uh the uh everybody's being vectored into runway two six left and the fact that the rvr the runway visual range which basically is your horizontal the amount of uh horizontal um uh the, the horizontal visibility that you have sitting on the runway there that's called that's your rvr uh, the fact that that is below a certain threshold obviously means that the only way to get aircraft uh, landing uh, at that airport is using that category three approach. Now, there are times when uh, you will you will do actually, in fact, you have to do uh, an auto land. Each airplane has to do an auto land every 30 days, uh, whether it's uh, IMC or VMC, to make sure that the system still works. Because if you don't do an auto land inside of 30 days, then the auto land um, um, certification for the aircraft expires and you go back to only being able to land uh, category one ILSs, which is a 200 feet and a half a mile visibility. And so uh, oftentimes 
um, uh, maintenance uh, will ask you to please perform an auto land to make sure that the uh, that the certification of the aircraft stays uh, on, on category three. And so, if you're going to do an auto land and conditions are VMC, you will tell uh, approach and then tower that you're going to be doing auto land so that they can keep the ILS critical area clear for you to be able to perform that auto land. So in that in in that situation, you would inform then, but not yeah. like like Jeff said, not not uh, not when conditions actually warrant a Cat three approach. Yeah, anytime you're they're they're uttering the word or letters RVR, I guarantee they are taking extra measures to protect the signal because you know normally you wouldn't hear them mention RVR readings, uh, you know so. And it, and and it, and not only it, it doesn't only end with the landing. There are there are um, specific taxi procedures as well. Uh, you can't just taxi off the runway, you know, and using any any old taxiway. You actually have to follow what's called SMIGS, um, and uh, you, you actually use uh, uh, specific taxiways to get you off from the runway to your parking spot there. So, mm-hmm. uh, the thing with uh, Ontario, though, that's interesting, is that they. Uh, they don't have ground radar. So it's very important that you let them know where you are um, mm-hmm. because uh, if uh, they obviously can't see you. So it's very important that you have a clear, uh, clear communication with Honestly, ATC because. Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I thought no, you were no, finished. I was going to say, honestly, sometimes the, uh, the hardest part uh, is not getting the airplane on the ground. It's getting from the runway off the runway into the apron and <laughs> or near your that's exactly that and that's exactly what happened to me the other day i was like well how the hell am i going to get this thing parked i can't see a thing right thankfully um uh off of the uh the the taxiway there uh there, we, there was a, a follow me car hmm. and there's basically you know i followed the car over to the uh to the uh, parking spot and that was that was the end of that but uh, yeah like you said the tricky part really is getting the airplane off the runway and parked uh, safely. Uh, you basically taxi out a crawl because you can't see a thing. Right. All right. Very good. Good discussion. Uh, the FAA. Oh, this is good news for, uh, for Captain Nick. Uh, this oh, is going to ground all the pilots now. Well, balloon pilots. Uh, maybe, I don't know if they can't uh, <laughs> maintain meta or attain medical requirements. Says uh, FAA proposes medical requirements for commercial hot air balloon balloon pilots. Uh, let's see. So they proposed a rule today. When was this? November second, just recently, requiring commercial air, hot air balloon pilots to hold medical certificates when operating for hire. Do they have to hold them in their hand, or can they can they hold them in their pocket? Between their knees. I'm not sure. Between their knees, Liz says. <laughs> the, <laughs> <laughs> it's very difficult. Uh, the rule would mandate a second-class medical certificate, the same standard required for commercial pilots. Balloon, I guess I now, mean. Can you smoke pot and how, hold a second-class medical? It depends on where you or and how you hold it. Yeah, as long as you don't get caught, you can do anything. <laughs> if you hold, I mean, do they it, do if you hold it with your one hand, like your left hand, and the and the um, joint you in your right hand, joint yeah, in the other hand, yeah. you can do it. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just curious. I mean, uh, are you I allowed don't think to be so. a pot smoking medical certificate holder? I don't think so. Nah. I think that all the uh, FAA okay. medical certificates require you to be drug free, right? Yeah. yeah, I just see that was a requirement for balloon pilots <laughs> to, <laughs> to smoke. <laughs> oh, I yeah, <laughs> possibly. Uh, Perhaps let, I meant that. I'm not sure now. Okay, let's see. 
commercially, uh, currently, commercial balloon pilots are exempt from the medical requirement. Uh, in the FAA Reauthorization Act of 2018, which is just now getting <laughs> implemented, Congress directed ah, the government. Yeah, directed the FAA to revise the medical cert- certification standards for commercial balloon pilots. The draft rule also addresses an NTSB safety board recommendation. Um, is that a draft rule because balloons uh, are in baskets? It's drafty, yes. <laughs> yeah, very drafty. You're drinking draft. Uh, let's see. And hey, the, balloon uh, pilots are pilots too. Come on. <laughs> oh, oh, no. The FAA in recent years <laughs> took steps to increase the safety of hot air balloon tourism by working with the Balloon Federation of America, the BFA, on an accreditation program. The program includes voluntary standards for pilots and operators and offers offers multiple tiers of BFA safety accreditation. Uh, so 60 days you have out there, folks, to provide your comments 60 days from just a few days ago. So less than that now. Nick will be writing in. Yeah, so Nick, yep. so if you want to write into the FAA and give your um, your opinion Oh, I've about already this. written in. Oh, have you? Okay. Your two cents. Yeah. <laughs> you owe you two pens over there because it's uh, in the side of the pond, So, uh, yeah. Oh, no, It's funny because I was, uh, <laughs> was on a... Uh, the uh one of my classmates when i first got on with atlas uh, with a giant uh Al- what is it called acme giant yeah mm-hmm. um he was a balloon pilot and he had it on his license there and he was very proud of it and he looked exactly the way a balloon pilot would look yeah very uh very <laughs> slightly singed hair <laughs> yeah <it> was, <laughs> how does a balloon know, uh, pilot like, look i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> very, it's, it's the, you know it's it's uh, so, i know you know a uh an older gentleman, very, very, um, I guess, classy with a bit of a oh monocle. Well, you know, not not a top hat or anything. <laughs> a top hat monocle, oh. like Mr. Peanut. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> and, a and a walking cane, to- <laughs> but, a, but very, very proper, very proper fellow. You know, uh, okay, yeah, you look what, exactly what a balloon. I'm starting to like wonder what's going on in your head, head, Rick. Yeah, really. I don't know. I'm I'm worried about I'm you. Daydreaming half the daydreaming half the day. So. Uh, I don't know myself. So. Okay. Well, anyway, we had to throw that. Liz had to throw that in there for uh, specifically for Captain Nick. So hope you enjoyed that. I appreciate that. <laughs> Balloon pilots are all basket cases. <laughs> yes, Dale. Hey, uh, uh, I hope you all don't mind. I'm going to uh, take a, a temporary uh, timeout. Um, I should have used the facilities before we started the recording, and uh, I did not. And I have, I've been drinking a lot of coffee today and a little bit of beer. And I need to do that before we move on. Otherwise, I'm going to be dancing in my chair. It's just not going to be I'll tell good. you what, I'll do, I'll, I'll do the same. Okay. All right. So, uh, Nick, if you're uh, okay, uh, entertain the troops. No, oh, he's, look. A, he's, okay. a, he's already gone. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> it's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> If I could, I'd fly for free. La, 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 la. Um, all right. I think now we shall move on and uh, cover this one. It's big, a big news story here. Uh, just happened very recently. And uh, we have a, well, let's see. Should we run the video first or should we just read this? Uh, yeah, let's do that. Okay. Let's play this video. And uh, here we go. 3 November, runway 27 left, cleared for takeoff. The surface wind, 220 degrees, 4 knots. Standby for roll command. Cleared for takeoff, 27 left, and uh, standby 
speed of one runway two seven right, clear for takeoff. Surface wind is two two zero degrees at four knots. Stand by for roll command. Clear for takeoff, two seven right, standing by for roll command. Speedbird one. November 321, now. Number 321, now. No? Ooh. Virgin 3, contact London Control, 134, decimal 125. G'day. 134, 125, Virgin 3, bye. Thanks ever so much, everybody. You're welcome, bye-bye. Bye. Speedbird 1, contact London Control, 119, decimal 7808, nicely done. 19780, thanks very much for that. That was great. Speedbird 1. Well, you mean they took off without crashing. Well done, Speedbird. Yeah, nicely done. Okay, earlier this morning, which was Monday, November 8th, we celebrated the reopening of the U.S. to U.K. travelers with a spectacular synchronized parallel takeoff from Heathrow. It was spectacular. Something that's extremely rare. But why exactly is it so uncommon, and what does it take operationally to pull it off? Discussions between Nats, Heathrow, British Airways, and Virgin started way back in May of this year in the hope of a U.S. reopening sometime over the summer. While that didn't happen, we kept the plans on ice until last month once it became clear things were moving in a positive direction. For us, there were two priorities. By the way, who is this speaking? This is from the Nats.Aero blog. Okay. Um, Let's see. For us, there were two priorities, making sure it could be done safely, not safety, which is always paramount, and working out how to do it in perfect sync with both aircraft starting their roll down the runway and rotating, um, lifting off at the same time. Working with the airline flight planning teams, we started by looking at the required takeoff time and working back from there. How long would passengers need to get through security? When would the baggage and catering be loaded? Which gates were, were being used? What was the likely taxi time? The weight of each aircraft? What runway entry point would work best? All those factors had to be calculated and taken into account. With the plan calling for a 8.50 departure, we agreed that pushback needed to take place no later than 8.20 to allow time for both aircraft to be lined up and ready to go. Typically, each runway is looked after by one of two air controllers, with one handling arrivals and the other departures, with a seven-minute gap in arrivals expertly created by the team in terminal control at Swanwick. Swanwick? Swanwick. Swanwick. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, Both air air uh, air controllers assumed departure responsibilities. One for British Airways Whiskey One on Runway 27 Right, the other for Virgin uh, Romeo 3 on 27 Left. Both, Once both aircraft were lined up, the pilots were given the standard takeoff clearance, but with one very unusual addition. Yeah, I thought, what? What are they saying here? Both were told to stand by for roll command before the final instruction of 3, 2, 1, now was given simultaneously. I bet you the uh, Speedbird 1 crew liked that one a lot. That's what uh, that's what uh, Concorde pilots used to do uh, oh. before, uh, yeah, before um, taking off. So uh, on the Concorde, uh, you wouldn't uh, advance the engine slowly, wait for them to stabilize, and then select takeoff power. What they would do is they would um, go from just you know thrust levers to close, go three, two, one, now, and then the captain would advance. Uh, all four thrust levers, uh, all the way up to the stops, and then uh, the uh, takeoff roll would commence that way. So I guess in a way, that's got a little bit of historical significance as well. Being oh, at, yeah, that's uh, true. 
that uh, you know that has a uh, the flight number uh, Speedbird one. So uh, I thought that was yeah, cool. Because normally uh, in the UK we go ready, steady, go. <laughs> I thought it had something to do with Thunderbirds. What was that? What they say? Uh, Thunderbirds are go. Are go. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I would have done if I were on the radio. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it goes on to say Heathrow's runways were only 1,414 meters apart, which seems kind of not that close to me, uh, which is too close to be able to do parallel departures outside of very specific weather and visual conditions. The controllers must rely on what's called reduced separation in the vicinity of an aerodrome to ensure the aircraft remains safely apart as they climb out of the airport. And thankfully, today, the great British weather was playing ball. Once, Once both flights were climbing... At least three nautical miles apart and on clearly diverging routes, the pilots were handed over to the team at Swanwick to continue their journey off to the Atlantic and ultimately New York JFK Airport, where they were warmly welcomed by the controllers there. <laughs> yeah, first the Virgin one, and then nine minutes later, the BA one. Oh, oh. We won. Yeah. Ah, yay. So it was a little yeah, competition there. Virgin, huh? Virgin one. <laughs> They don't uh, mention that in this uh, in this article for some reason. Huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. I wonder what. Uh, I wonder how our uh, our friend from uh, Control Tower there in Philly would have done here. Uh, <laughs> Turn left. Great to, job. No, 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 Three, no. Two, one. No, no, stop. No, no. <laughs> you're you're turning left. Well, yeah, that's what you told us to do. Oh no, we'll turn right then. The other left. Do something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that yeah. reminds me of something that we uh, we covered in the last show about people screaming on frequency. And I have a little treat for everybody uh, uh, when we do our getting to know us segment. Uh, one of our one of our uh, APG community members slash producers uh, did something special for us. Um, but before we do that, let's uh, cover uh, anything else to cover here uh, besides doing the uh, Sp- spiking BA the football second. Yeah, spiking the football in the in the end zone for uh, Virgin Atlantic or whatever you guys do. Yeah, they, they yeah they tried to uh, they tried to pull the same thing off in New York, landing at the same time, and then the uh, controller was like, "Get out of here!" <laughs> yeah, that's right. Forget about it. We don't yeah. got time for you. You you, you want now? Nah, get out of here. Forget about it. Forget about it. All right. Uh, last item in the news: accident Sida D two twenty eight at. Nepalgunj on November 2nd, 2021, Boar Strike. And Liz puts in here a little special note. The latest in the ongoing APG series, aircraft and animals. Don't mix. (laughs) I added that part. Uh, Let's see. Oh, I should probably share this so we can see the pictures. Um, Let's see here. Share screen and window. And here is the article. Um, let's see, a Saida Air Donier DO-228 registration, 9 November Alpha Hotel Bravo, performing a flight from Nepal Gunj to Sumakot, Nepal, with 17 people on board, was accelerating for takeoff when the aircraft collided with three wild boars, attempt, uh, prompting the crew to reject takeoff due to problems with the nose gear. The aircraft came to a stop with the nose gear partially collapsed, bent backwards, and damaged to the underside of the fuselage. There were no injuries to the aircraft occupants. Are you screen sharing, Jeff? I am. Oh, no, I'm not. Um, it's not happening. Yeah, but actually, I'm just reading the stuff here. I don't have the picture up yet, okay. so 
Um, there were no injuries to the aircraft occupants. The three wild pigs did not survive. Uh, wonder if the pigs had insurance. I don't know, but uh, three little pigs. No, probably not. Unfortunately. <laughs> but that had made nice hamburgers afterwards, I'm sure. I know. I was going to say, you know, the uh, hard part of the uh, pig roast is uh, done. Usually the pigs are done. <laughs> there. It's just <laughs> yeah, a matter of, right. uh, you know, getting the fire pit going. Yep. yep. Stick an apple in its mouth and away you there go. There you go. And there's the... See, the sad part is that they were, they were each going to their houses. One had a straw house. The other one had a... <laughs> mm-hmm. There you <laughs> go. Finally, we, we somebody picked up on it. Excellent, yeah, the big Rick. bad wolf was the pilot of the uh, of the Dio uh, two two. Yeah, this, so he got his revenge. This Dornier kind of looks like a big bad wolf with its little black, mm-hmm. wet nose. <laughs> um, but uh, look at that collapsed gear there. That's no good. Oof, Oof yeah. But the uh, Dornier uh, came out much better than the the pigs, the boars. Absolutely. And there's yeah. the lifting up the uh, front part of the airplane to uh, do something. I don't know what they're doing there. Anyway, so there you go. Nature, a nature story, a, a feel-good story. Oh, wait a minute. That was not a feel-good <laughs> yeah. story at all. A feel-bad story. Yeah, a feel-bad yeah. story for you before we move on to the next segment, which, of course, is getting to know us, whether you want to or not. A wonderful overlay there that we're... Uh, Projecting, getting to Boy, like that us. That guy's not a pilot. He's a, he's a, he's in his undershirt. What the hell? I know. It's like <laughs> yeah. glad oh, you had there. something yeah. on. I guess he didn't okay. iron it. He doesn't well, that shirt. hopefully he's got his underpants on as well. Ah. Yeah. Well, I think uh, Liz yeah. is saying that uh, Rick was obviously having somebody iron his shirt or something. Right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Extra starch, please. Yeah. All right. Um, who, well, you know what, Rick, you haven't been with us uh, in a while. Uh, why don't you get us up to date? Uh, what's What's been happening with you? Well, uh, not a lot, really. Just uh, spent uh, days off at home doing the usual home stuff, uh, you know, keeping the place nice and tidy, going to the gym, uh, playing with the dogs. Uh, Lucy's coming along great, my, my little... My little Belgian Malinois, I'm taking her to puppy class. She's uh, going to agility class. Um, this dog is uh, just something else. I tell you, she's uh, <laughs> she, she's an amazing little puppy. She's cute. And then, oh yeah, she she's she's great. She's great. She's uh one of our uh, one of our fosters. I I failed on that one because we were supposed to foster her for just a little while, and I just couldn't let I just couldn't let go of her. So oh, uh, so she's uh she's my little ray of sunshine. That one. Um. Why am and I then, not uh, surprised? <laughs> <laughs> You're a softy. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, and then, uh, so after that uh, was all done, I uh, started a trip uh, a couple of days ago. Um, uh, went over to uh, Kona and then on to Maui. Um, I had a um, little bit of an issue once we landed in Kona after landing uh, maintenance came up to the cockpit and said that we had a, a little bit of a hydraulic leak uh, on one of our uh, brakes um, brake number five um, and so um, you know they they were working on that and this was during the turnaround going because uh, the, the, the flat was continuing on to Maui which is uh, you know it was uh, 
not worrying to me, but uh, you know, the fact that I have one less break to deal with is always something that I need to very, very carefully evaluate because Maui is a very short runway um, and uh, conditions are always windy there and we always land very heavy in Maui. So, uh, um, you know, after talking to dispatch and doing all the calculations and applying the correct uh, uh, procedure and uh, going over the uh, the uh, dispatch DP, not well, yeah, the dispatch deviation guide and all that other stuff, I, I made sure that uh, everything was kosher and uh, things were indeed very much kosher. And so we uh, departed to uh, to Maui. Uh, the the procedure did say that I had to um, leave the landing gear down for the first two minutes because. Um, uh, the way they dealt with the problem with the brake was they basically capped the brake line that goes into that brake assembly. And so that, 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 that one wheel, uh, didn't have, uh, brakes. So basically what happens is that when you bring the landing gear to the, to the up position, uh, the, 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 the right hydraulic system, which on the 767 operates, the primary brakes is going to apply the brakes to the, to the, to the main, uh, landing gear. And the reason behind that is that you want the wheels to stop, because since the wheels rotate along the longitudinal axis of the aircraft, but the landing gear um, uh, retracts um, along the lateral axis of the aircraft, the gyroscopic forces um, would be, you know, uh, just the stresses that you're putting on the airplane would be, uh, you know, too, too, too great. And so that's why you want to stop the wheels before you track the landing gear. That's not the case with the nose landing gear because the nose landing gear retracts on the same plane as uh, wheel rotation. And so I was talking to my FN. I was like, well, you know what? It's only a 20 minute flight and uh, I have one less break and I want to break my, I want to make sure that the brakes are nice and cool. And why don't we just uh, fly with the landing gear down the whole way? <laughs> and the guy's like, well, that's, you know, it's a good idea. Why don't we do that? I was like, yeah, let's do that. Let's just climb to 12,000 12, feet. Uh, keep the speed at 250. Um, and that way we both make sure that the, the, the brakes are nice and cool. And also landing in, in Kona, I had, I had landed with, uh, uh about 8,000 pounds more fuel than I needed for the flight between uh, Kona and Maui. So, you know, that way we, we, we burn a little bit extra fuel. We make sure the brakes are nice and cool. And, uh, and, uh, we, 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 we land in Maui and that's what we did. We left, left the landing gear down. And it's noisy, and, uh, really, really noisy. It, it was, and oh, and man, a lot of vibrations. It was very, <laughs> yeah, very but noisy. no passengers to complain about it. That's true. No, no passengers. And even if I'd had passengers be like, Hey, deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Nice so, PA <laughs> deal with it. Exactly. So, uh, so that's what we did. We, that's what we did. We basically flew the seven, six, like a Cessna caravan, a little island hopper there landed in uh, Maui windy as all heck as it usually is, but uh, no problem. Had a nice, uh, layover there in Maui. And then, uh, the following evening, uh, flew back out to Ontario and that's when we had the, uh, the, uh, cat three approach, the, uh, Autoland, which uh, is interesting because that's the first time my FO had flown a category three approach ever, which is, um, well, the FO didn't fly because Cat 3 approaches are, are, are flown by the captain only. But uh, the first time he'd been a part of a uh, Cat 3 uh, operation. And the first time he'd ever flown with the landing gear down from uh, takeoff to landing, too. So it's a lot of first for this guy. Cool. Um, yeah, landed in Ontario. And then the following day, um, they uh, airlined me over to uh, Honolulu, which was uh, very nice. I uh, came out here. Had a mai tai at seven in the morning because it's five. It's you know it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> True. Um, 
Yeah, made it to uh, Honolulu. I was supposed to fly out uh, back to uh, Ontario yesterday, but uh, you know, just re- rearranging flight schedules and legs and stuff. You know, my flight, my my leg, particular leg, was canceled, and so they were having me fly uh, deadhead actually later tonight uh, to get into Ontario tomorrow morning at uh, five in the morning, and then me operate right back out here. That mm. same afternoon. And I was like, uh, no, that's not going to happen. Doesn't They're like, well, but you have legal, legal, you have legal rest. Yeah, I have legal rest, but uh, it's not going to happen. <laughs> so they very, very, you know, um, um, thankfully they rearranged my schedule. So now I'm, uh, I'm here until, uh, until Thursday, Thursday evening. And then I'll uh, make it uh, over to San Bernardino, uh, which is going to be my first time flying in there, which is uh, another captain only approach. Not because there's anything, you know, special about that airport, but because apparently the missed approach procedure is a little tricky because uh, the airport itself is right up against the mountains there. So you only land to the east and you only take off to the west. And so the reason why they're having us fly uh, into San Bernardino that early is because that way the wind isn't really an issue because we can't on the 7-6, at least for... And at my airline, our uh, uh, tailwind limit is only 10 knots. Now, the mm-hmm. 767 certified with a 15-knot tailwind. And the re- the, 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 that difference, that 10 to 15-knot tailwind uh, difference there for our operation is uh, nothing but uh, signing a paper somewhere and paying a couple thousand dollars, which uh, we haven't done yet. But uh, once we're certified for 15, that's going to give us a bit more flexibility. And so, yeah, that's the reason why you uh, – you uh, land to the east and take off to the west. And so, yeah, I'll be getting into San Bernardino, and then uh, I'm done, going home. So that's, uh, that's what I've been up to. Very nice. Very yes, nice. sir. All right. Oh, well, love, I, love, I love it. Uh, I'd love to hear the life of an airline pilot. <laughs> Remember that? So nice. Remember those days? Yeah, no. No, I don't. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? In a couple of years, I'll be in the same boat, and... Um, I'll just listen yeah. to other people well, talk about it. What are we going to call the show then, Jeff? Uh, Ooh, the Airline Pilot Guy Show. <laughs> the Retired Airline Pilot Guy Show. Yeah. Yeah, I don't well, know. I mean, I'll, I'll still be an airline pilot, so it's, there you uh, go. it'll be That's very true. Yeah, and, and Steph true. is not an airline pilot, and she's still on this show, so I say just leave it. You know what? I wouldn't put it past her to get the 1,500 hours, and just for the hell of it, Go out yep. and get hired you mean, on as a, as, yeah. You think that she'd do some something more than she's already oh, yeah. been doing? I mean, come on. Exactly. Just just for the cast privileges. And I yeah. tell you, I just, knowing her, she'll, she, she, she'd she do it. I would she'd not surprise and us. She'd be, and she'd be good at it, too. Well, you know what? Oh, yeah, Since absolutely. we're already talking about Steph, we might as well jump to her section of getting to know us. Uh, and you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Um, she She's not here. How can we do that? Well, I'll tell you how. We can play this audio right here. Well, 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 where are we? We are not in a bathroom, I can tell you that. This is Hillel. We are at the Beer Authority in Midtown Manhattan because our Dr. Steph has finished the New York City Marathon. And we are here to celebrate that and to hang out. So we're having ourselves a little meetup. I'll let each person introduce themselves. And so, first of all, congratulations to Dr. Steph. And she did great. We had some pictures of her. Hopefully, they'll be in the show notes. And I will pass it on to the next victim of our little meetup. 
Hey guys, this is Laura Davis, uh, hanging out in New York City for a long weekend to see Dr. Steph run and meeting up with these lovely people, having a good time, and uh, yeah, it was exciting to watch my first time watching a marathon and really happy to have the experience and get to meet Dr. Steph finally in person, so yep. APG crew and community. It's Tanya and Philip. I'm speaking on behalf of Philip. It's just so great to be able to cheer on Steph for the second time in the New York City Marathon here in our city. It was a blast. She kicked ass. And it was so, so great to see Hillel and Laura and Dave. And we just had a wonderful time. And now we're having a beverage, of course. And uh, we're having a, a great time, and it's just so great to see everybody after so long, you know, after this pandemic. So, wonderful time, wonderful people, and cheers, everybody. Hey, everybody. David Abbey, and um, it was great to watch Dr. Steph in her second New York City Marathon, and it's so impressive what she does all the time, marathoning, skydiving, piloting. The grass does not grow under her feet. But anyway, it's a great get-together this week in New York City. Great excuse for Hillel and Laura to come to New York City and, and other people to come watch her run. Well done, Dr. Steph. Yeah, uh, maybe. Let's see. And uh, next is uh, my good friend John, who I know from growing up, and was nice to come out and watch the, the race. Hi, this is John. I just, I just completed my third New York City Marathon as a spectator, and it was exhausting, as usual, and um, it's really nice to be here, and congratulations to Dr. Stephanie, who... Uh, right. Thank you. Oh, that's all we're getting from John. That's, uh, that's all right. Dr. Steph here. Um, I do just want to say that I am so humbled that all of these wonderful people came out to watch the marathon today. They certainly didn't. Didn't have to take time out of their day to do so. Special shout out to Laura and Hillel for, you know, really um, traveling pretty significant distances to be here. It means a lot to me. And, you know, I know it was a nice day in the city and I, I hope they had a good time and had fun hanging out with everybody. But um, it was really nice to, to have their support out here. And, you know, it certainly doesn't take away anything either from our locals, Tanya and Philip and Dave and his friend John. They were all out there on the course, um, you know, and they... They posted up at some spots that are notoriously difficult, um, so knowing that they were out there and then being able to see them was a huge boost of um, adrenaline and confidence and, and gave me the motivation to, to keep going when it was definitely hurting and uh, definitely a tough spot. So I, I really appreciate all of you guys. Thank you so much for, for being here today. Um, really nice weekend on top of it. The weather was gorgeous. You know, nice fall weekend here in the city. And... Even more than that, the conversation, uh, the chance to hang out, enjoy some good food and beverages together in each other's company is second to none. So thank you all again. This is amazing. Uh, I know that has not a lot to do with aviation, but there was some good aviation conversation that happened this weekend as well. Uh, so we didn't, you know, leave that out completely. But anyway, we're going to um, wrap up our drinks and food here. So I'll throw it back to you all in the studio. Catch you soon. Thanks, Dr. Steph. <clears throat> and... Yes, the Beer Authority is the very same place. We're actually almost, I think, in the exact same spot 
as we were sitting last time we were here, um, many, many moons ago when people like Nick were still flying and coming to New York and visiting B&H. But um, in any case, it was great to see everybody. Uh, day trip to New York was great fun, and it was always great to cheer on Dr. Steph, and yet another amazing accomplishment. So back to Jeff and everybody else in the studio. Thanks, Halal. Uh, great report, and uh, so good to see our community getting together, especially now that the pandemic seems to be tapering off a bit. And uh, it was so cool to... Uh, I wish that uh, all of us could have been there to cheer Steph on on yet another marathon. Lovely to hear, uh, uh, Steph. Great to hear that they're back in the uh, Beer Authority because it was just up from the New Yorker uh, Hotel where I used to stay and had one of our very first meetups there. All these strange people uh, coming and drinking beer and talking airplanes and course all those strangers have now turned into very good friends so uh, absolutely brilliant i remember that very well yeah that was a lot of fun a lot of memories from that place and absolutely. congratulations to steph she broke four hours i gather yeah three yeah. hours 59 minutes and uh, apparently that those last four miles real killer so uh, well done steph fantastic finish good job absolutely rock star as always i wonder if uh, if uh uh, Hillel was in his uh, you know, bathrobe and loofah. It sounded like he had a loofah in hand there. So no, I think uh, he started off by saying that you know he's not in the shower, which is kind of unusual, I have to admit. Yeah, mm. it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Can someone help me out? Yeah, the the pit was a close-up picture of Steph doing it, I think. What's she got in her left hand? What's that um, funny-looking Thing. I think it looks like, uh, I don't know. Here, let me put that back on there so everybody can look at it and scrutinize it. I'm just wondering if there's some runner out there that knows what this technical device is that she's got. It looks kind of like a hat. I don't know. I'm, I was just curious. Not it so might be important. some kind of um, drinking, like... like. Oh, it looks like some kind of, uh, yeah, it looks like some bladder, kind of... Uh, like, like a bladder. Bladder. Yeah. With a, uh, with an, I guess... Uh, a mouthpiece? Yeah. yeah. Either nutrition or drinking, I think. Yeah, or something they call goo or something like that. I don't know. Runners talk about this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's for, yeah. uh, for for electrolytes or energy or... Yeah. I don't know. Above. I, will never, I will never know because I'm not running, <laughs> you know, four marathons in a month. Yeah. So not. if they're electrolytes, do Duracell make those or what? Yeah, you can either drink that or, or, or eat a couple batteries and uh, it <laughs> yeah. has the same effect. Um uh, yeah. makes your eyes light up. Yeah, and if they're energizer, you just keep going and going. And yeah, going. yeah, yeah. But only um, if you're a bunny. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you got to have a, 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 a you know a fluffy bunny tail. Otherwise, it doesn't work. <laughs> well, Nick, how have you been, sir? Uh, I've been uh, pretty busy actually trying to get uh, uh -huh. this uh, uh, plane tail done. Um, but I did uh, have some help from uh, someone I'd just like to give him a shout out, uh, Nia Bendov uh, from Israel, who first of all suggested this week's plane tale and then said, uh, you know, there is an interview with the pilot involved that, uh, you know, you might be interested in, but it's in Hebrew. So he said, if you want to get together on, um, you know, WhatsApp or whatever, uh, we can have a chat and I'll um, I'll translate for you, which was absolutely fantastic. So I spent 
uh, Sunday uh, afternoon, spent uh, uh, an hour uh, yakking away to Nia. Nia is the same guy who told me about um, the plane tail I did, uh, 007, um, the uh, MiG-21 that um, the Israeli intelligence service managed to arrange for the pilot to defect and they escorted me into Israel when the MiG-21 was, you know, the new kid on the block, the great aeroplane of its time. And the Israelis got hold of one, and that's how the Americans first got hold of one, because the Israelis lent it to them for a while so they could have a play with it. So uh, Nia has uh, um, been instrumental in helping me out with a couple of plane tales, and uh, both that uh, MiG-21 and the aircraft involved in tonight's plane tail uh you know he's seen them both in the museum over there wow. so uh, i think it's fantastic anyway so thanks very much to uh nia and just a reminder you know the 500 is coming up uh the days are starting to tick down i've still got around 10 um places available um in uh farnborough and just to remind you, and it's such a good deal because we're going to have a look around the uh, museum beforehand. Um, there's going to be, you know, uh, a few adult beverages and uh, a, a bite to eat if, uh, you know, you get hungry while we're doing the show. And uh, then I'm sure we will um, settle back uh, somewhere afterwards and uh, have a beer and chat. We've got a great panel uh, at this end of the uh, Atlantic. So um, praying Captain Al will have a time off. He's bid for time off. But uh, we've got uh, Captain Nige. We've got Adam Spink from uh, Heathrow Traffic. Uh, we've got Pip coming. But, uh, you know, with Pip, uh, well, you, you take what you get. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but basically, no, I'm only kidding. And, of course, we've got the fantastic Neville. Uh, and he I don't know if any of the others of PTUK guys are going to make it, but there is an invitation for Nev Plus One. Um, yep, yeah, that's right, Neville. We're getting together back up at uh, um, Farnborough on the 18th to have a test run with the equipment, make sure it all is going to work up there. Um, so I, I'm really looking forward to it. So if you were uh, thinking of, oh, I think I should be able to make that, uh, you better start you know, writing in those uh, emails. And don't forget, if I get more than 25 that uh, we've got room for in the audience, then it will be down to who's given us the best suggestions uh, for which uh, little bits of past shows that you'd like to uh, have included uh, in our retrospective. Um, so uh, just bear in mind that it'd be really useful if you give a time and a show number because we're flat strapped trying to organise all this and uh, trying to dig out these things ourselves. If you haven't given us a point of reference, it's going to be really hard. So uh, if you could do that, it would make life so much easier. Yes. Very good. Oh, and I just wanted to mention, I saw, I saw your, uh, your interview with uh, Aunt Pruitt about the pet photography Oh, oh man, yeah, that was that was that was phenomenal. I didn't, I had no idea there was so much involved uh, with uh, with pet photography, and I really enjoyed, really enjoyed the. Uh, well, that's kind. Of, your, isn't your that a wonderful bloke? Oh, I absolutely. thoroughly enjoyed chatting absolutely. to uh, him. He's uh, he's so generous with his praise as well, because I didn't deserve half of what he said. But funny enough, I did a, a pet shoot uh, with a lovely old uh, Hungarian Vishla uh, over the weekend. And, um, you know, he, he's 10 or 11 and still banded around like a, oh, you wow. know, a puppy. They're just, I, I just, yeah, 
absolutely great. So um, I'm still working through those pictures, actually. So I've got to try and produce that uh, gallery by the end of the week. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm spending too much time in front of this damn computer. <laughs> yep. Liz but is thank saying, you, Rick. That's you have Thursday off, Liz is saying, so now you have some time. <laughs> yeah, you, you do have Thursday <laughs> off. <laughs> yes, that's very true. Yes, no excuse. <laughs> hey, mystery solved. Uh, Tanya, who was at that uh, meetup of APG people uh, in New York uh, said she did, this is talking about what that item was that Steph was holding in her hand. So she did it's take a hat? What her did hat off. Go around as a chicken? I don't know. It's a very bright, her chicken interesting hat? looking hat, but she, I guess she's scrunching it up and changing the shape of it or something. I don't know. Okay. But, I thought it might be a rooster's hat. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, earlier I had mentioned that, um, and I teased it a little bit that uh, somebody in our community had uh, modified one of our, our little jingles um, based on that um, go around at uh, Newark. And uh, so let me uh, play the Hudson Rhodes is his name. Hudson, thank you very much for doing this. This is very cool. You can always go around. If it don't look right, coming down. Don't wait until your sides are raised. <laughs> that's our new go around uh, yeah, that, awesome? <laughs> that was uh, absolutely hudson rose that. yeah he contacted me and said hey can i have the uh a couple of these different files and and i'd like to put something together i went oh yeah sure here you go so thank you hudson uh, for doing great. that that was great uh, that's yeah. good um <laughs> let's see i yeah, was very good i'm on a um four-day trip and uh, count them for day two right now in Dayton, Ohio. Um, not uh, at the uh, uh, studio in Lake Burton, but uh, things got a little jumbled around a little bit in our, on our plans for recording this week. Um, and I'm so happy that we were able to get together today to do the whole thing. Uh, it's a Tuesday. Thanks uh, to Nick for getting his plane tail Yes, ready. thank you, Nick, for getting the plane tail ready, Liz says, um, in, on such short notice. Um, but uh, I was in Lexington, Kentucky uh, yesterday, and uh, Nick, you might remember Lexington, Kentucky is the home of that company that makes very, very large donkey fans, uh, the big-ass fan <laughs> company. Very large donkeys and, yeah, and their it. fans. <laughs> exactly. And uh, so Greg picked me up from the hotel downtown, and we went out to uh, his neck of the woods uh, where he uh, grew up actually not far from where he grew up in lexington uh, to a uh, a diner uh, called um ramsey's diner and oh before i get on to that let me uh, show you the photo that greg took uh, it turns out that the final approach uh to oh hang on let's see i'm not ready i guess the final approach to the runway that we landed on goes right over the top of the big ass fan company. And uh, so Greg went outside and had his trusty camera with him and he shot that. And that is, well, you know what? Hang on. That can't be me. That's the wrong airline, Greg. Yeah, wrong airline. They were ahead uh, of us, right okay. ahead of us, and uh, you must have mistaken this airliner with my Acme seven one seven. Oh well, it's, it's a quite good shot. A sleek little airplane, <laughs> though, isn't it? 
It's a little it? tiny thing. 717. Yeah, it's a little yeah. mini dog. It's, yeah, uh, it's fun to fly. Yeah. I like it. I like yeah. it. Anyway, uh, park next to one here. In, yeah, park next to one here in, in Honolulu. Uh, Hawaiian has a bunch of stuff. Oh yeah, they do. I really do like that airplane. I really do. Yeah, like it's it. it's really a nice airplane to fly. It really is. And uh, basically, they've this latest iteration of the DC nine family. Uh, they they pretty much anything that was not quite right over all the years. They seem to have worked it out and and fixed everything. It's really a solid solid jet. Um, and the automation is wonderful and. Anyway, just had a little recording with uh, Greg and I at the uh, diner, so here we go. Hey gang, I'm with Greg B.A.F. Peterson <laughs> at the Ramsey's Diner, is that what you call it? Yeah. Uh, we haven't had the food yet, it smells great in here, we haven't had food. It's kind of a kind of a down-home diner, southern cooking kind of place here in Lexington, Kentucky. I'm on a layover. Day one of four, and uh, I told Greg, "Hey, I'm going to be in Lexington. I know I'm going to see you in a couple weeks in Atlanta for the for the uh, Big 500th episode recording slash celebration. But um, let's get together and have some dinner or something when I'm uh, in Lexington on Monday. So here we are, and uh, look forward to giving you a full review on uh, how the vittles are here at the uh, at Ramsey's Diner. But uh, Greg, you want to say hello to the uh, to all the all your fans. Sure. Hey everybody! Uh, it's glad to have Jeff here in town. Uh, I gave him a couple options of places to go eat, and he picked the uh, homestyle food. So I know this place is really good. The uh, eating here lots of times, and the food is really great. It's good down home cooking. So hopefully he'll enjoy it, and give it a good review, and come back next time he's here. All right. Very good. I was just while you were talking, Greg. I was looking over over there, and there's a uh, picture from several years ago of the Bluegrass Field uh, control tower at the uh, at the airport that I've I've flown in and out of several times over the years, and just flew into uh, this morning. So, anyway, great time. It's always fun to uh, be with Greg and talk about this and that, and get all caught up and such and. That's enough gabbing for me. <laughs> so I'm going to throw it back to you in the studio. Here it comes. Oh, wow. Didn't have to throw it so Good hard. Good catch. Good catch. Thank you. And Greg's <laughs> going to be in Atlanta, right, Jeff? Yes, Greg will be in Atlanta. He has booked his room. By the way, uh, in the show notes, you'll, have, you'll see a link to book your hotel room at the Renaissance Concourse if you're going to join us for the 500th episode recording in Atlanta. And... Um, Oh my God, what a crappy picture. Yes, well, I'm showing this crappy picture here. A crap three approach to Turd Tower. Uh, our, our artist uh, extraordinaire, Captain Nick, um, tell us about how you came up with this artist concept. <laughs> well, I just have to work with what I'm given, Jeff. So, I know. Uh, it's very good. Absolutely. I, I laughed so hard when I saw it. Um, yeah, you know. Yeah. You, well, tell us. Uh, there's so many elements to this. Uh, to this one. Well, uh, we needed uh, an excuse for the airplane to dump all its uh, crap on Heathrow, so we need a 5G uh, um, signal uh, messing up with its radar. So that pilot's holding his phone, and there are all sorts of 5G warning signs around. So that's why the guy's done go around. And, of course, he's emptying his loo, his toilet, at the same time, mm -hmm. which uh, sadly is landing on Adam Spink. 
Uh, mm. We've got a tanker with all the constituents of uh, a decent chemtrail there driving along. And, uh, of course, that uh, beside it on the grass there is a Buddha. If you remember, we were talking about saying uh, uh, a little prayer before we go fly. Uh, reminds me of Air America. And, of course, that particular pilot is the first officer of some Canadian airplane who didn't have a torch to do his walk around and so we've given him a torch and in fact because there was uh, no anti-icing gear that's actually the de-icing torch so uh, he could use that to melt the to melt the ice on the wing uh, because it's a, a real flaming torch flaming torch yeah exactly so they were the main elements uh, we managed to get it all together in one picture i think it worked reasonably well Oh, absolutely. I, I like so. the chocolate milk. That was uh, a great little uh, clip I got there to represent emptying the aircraft's toilets. Mm. It is it is it is so complex. It's like a it's like a good <laughs> wine. It's got many, many layers. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah, there's a few bits yeah, going on yeah. there. And of course it hidden always is the show number. Mm-hmm. I so, see it. Uh, Liz and I always play a game Love to try it. and I try and hide it one. and she has to try and find the Yep. The show number. Where's the show number? It took me a while to find oh, it, but nice. it's in the uh, it's in the tower. Um, yep. Base yes. of the tower, I guess. Right. It's, it's up the it's up the tube that the tower is balanced yeah. on. Right. The pre- the previous week it was on the ring through the pig's nose, <laughs> but uh, this yeah. one's up there. And of course, the airliner that's dropping all that is an Acme uh, Airways. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah. That's, very that's, very nice. nice. Uh, now, I always I always get a kick out of uh, of when Nick uh, refers to the tower at Heathrow as the pepper pot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm not the first to do that. Yeah, they're, they're very salty in the pepper pot. So well, perhaps we ought to call it the salt and pepper pot. <laughs> so, whose face did you use in that uh, Canadian holding the torch? Who's is that? Somebody that we know, well, or is that a generic? Face? Uh, I think he he looks a lot like. Are Mr. Bounds. So yes. I have a feeling that that was the model we used for that face. Okay. Yes. I, so, okay. But is it actually his face or not? Uh, I, I'll let the listeners okay. um, work it out for themselves. Well, that's what I, that's who I thought it was actually when I saw it. So anyway, yeah, really, really. No, it's, yeah. it's a lucky coincidence. Uh, okay. you, you came up and said, "Is that Neville?" And I went, "Actually, yes, it, it could very well be." Yeah. Well, it was uh, very clever, and it had me laughing. And they're holding his phone and grasping. Well, the torch. you know. Comment here. Now, now that I'm looking at it, though, I'm thinking, you know, now it couldn't be Neville because Neville's much better looking than that face. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure he is. <laughs> now you come to mention it, I'm sure he is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Tim Van Ram says Playboy magazine always hides the bunny logo on the cover. A friend tells me. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you can see the cover without actually. That's why I have to look at the cover so hard. Uh, yeah, you know, I, it's usually. I kinda... No, I'm go ahead, go ahead, next year. I'm sorry. I say it's usually on the centerfold. I thought I used to have to study that centerfold for hours. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was informed that that's where it was. And <laughs> I was that's the only I was reason. Just looking for the logo. Yeah. Was, exactly. The only reason why. <laughs> that's funny though, because I kind of, I kind of play that game with, uh, with my pictures on Twitter too. I always try to, I, I hide the, uh, the, the water. Well, I did it. notice that you had your name on that throttle quadrant, mm-hmm. oh, just did you? below the throttle quadrant on that uh, <laughs> picture we saw earlier. 
Yeah. I was yeah. going, oh, no, that, that's... Comes like that from the factory, actually. That's the uh, kind of regard <laughs> exactly. that, uh, they, they all have your name on it. Exactly right. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Well, let's well, I never. straight from David Calhoun's desk. Let's uh, take a look <laughs> at that uh, just to uh, remind ourselves. Uh, here we go. Uh, there's the throttle quadrant, and then um, down a little bit below the throttles themselves, we see at Miami underscore Rick. And oh, hey, there's also a reference to the APG there uh, over there um, next to the speed brake uh, lever, fifty uh, percent. <laughs> yes, fifty percent. Yes, a very good point. Yeah, yep, that's the fifty percent mark. Yep. Yeah, that's how we managed to achieve exactly fifty percent. We know where to put the levers. That's no right. more, no less. Yes, <laughs> exactly mm. right. All right, it's now time for the coffee fun segment. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Jeff Smith, for singing the APG Java Jive a couple different ways, too. Participate in the Coffee Fun Cadre or the Coffee Bar Club. Your video and video is horrible, just uh, I'm sorry. Uh, my video is horrible, according to Liz. And nothing I can do about it, so nope, your there you go. Nope, your audio is fine, so keep going. Okay. So I'm going to continue with uh, telling you about our, con- our Coffee Fund contributors. And since the last episode, we had three use the Coffee Fund Classic Method, which is our PayPal donation site. Tom Durand, Mazutz Karim, and J.J. Pittsburgh. And a couple of them uh, were just special contributions to help offset some of the costs of uh, our 500th episode. So thank you very much. And uh, sadly, we don't have any new patrons for this week, but that's okay. We have a great number of very, very strong supporters of the show uh, via Patreon.com. So if you want to learn more about how you can participate in the Coffee Fund, please head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. We will too. Okay, we now are going to uh, continue the show. And normally we'd go to feedback, but it, we're right at about the point now where it's time for this week's installment of the old pilot's plain tales. And this week's tale is entitled Operation Tarnagal. Did I get that right? Okay, well, let's, uh, let's see what, what happens here. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, so let's all listen together. The old pilot's plain tales. Operation Tarnical. The Soviet-made Aleutian transport was quietly motoring west, away from Damascus at 10,000 feet, out over the Mediterranean Sea. For the high-ranking Egyptian officers on board, the flight was comfortable enough. The lights in the cabin were turned on so that people could walk around and talk. Suddenly, the black of the night that had surrounded them was split open, by bright tracer cannon fire that streaked past the windows with loud cracks 
and then the shock and thud as some struck the aircraft. The lights were all extinguished, so in the dark, tense and alarmed, everyone waited to see what would happen next. It was the 24th of October 1956, and the first shots in a war had just been fired. But to understand a little more of why this unarmed transport was being attacked, we need to go back a little over 100 years. The story begins when Ferdinand de Lesseps, a French former diplomat, persuades the Viceroy of Egypt to permit the construction of a shipping canal through 100 miles of desert between Africa and Asia. The trade route from the far and Middle East to northern Europe was long and dangerous. It took thousands of miles as it wended its way around the continent of Africa, the southern tip of which saw two vast ocean currents meet in a tumultuous cauldron of mountainous waves and fearsome weather. The Frenchman's suggestion was to form a company to construct a canal that would join the northern end of the Gulf of Suez to the Mediterranean Sea. Passage through the 120-mile-long canal would save ships some 5,500 miles, and the charges that could thus be levied would be considerable. Construction took some 10 years, and the cost was shouldered between France and Egypt, However, large debts built up by Egypt required them to put their shares up for sale, and Britain purchased them for £4 million. This new route gave the British Navy and merchant vessels a shortcut to its empire and to the oil fields of the Persian Gulf, so Britain was at pains to protect it. During the First World War, 10,000 British troops beat back the Turkish army, an ally of Germany, and drove them deep into the Sinai Desert. By 1922, Egypt was independent of Britain, but a provision had been made to allow British troops to remain in the Suez Canal zone to protect this vital asset. In the meantime, Europe again was at war, and for a second time Britain would commit forces to defend the canal, first against the Italians and then the German Africa Corps. The canal was almost lost until Montgomery launched a major offensive at El Alamein, which forced the German-Italian Panzer Army into retreat. In the post-war period, there was an upsurge of nationalism in Egypt. The newly elected Nationalist Party revoked earlier treaties and attacks on the British garrison protecting the canal soon followed. There were riots in Cairo of an unprecedented scale culminating in attacks on British property and the expatriate community. Britain responded by threatening to occupy Cairo, which prompted King Farouk of Egypt to dismiss the leader of his government, but... Then, in July 1952, the king was overthrown in a military coup. The military refused to give up power in Egypt, and by 1954, Colonel Gamal Abdul Nasser led them. He had three goals, to make Egypt independent by ending all British occupation, to build up Egyptian forces for a successful attack on Israel, 
and to improve Egypt's economy by constructing a high dam at Aswan to irrigate the Nile Valley. A new treaty was signed and British troops were withdrawn from Egypt. As the last British troops left, NASA was completing the purchase of Soviet-made aircraft, tanks and arms from Czechoslovakia, which would help him to realise another of his goals, the destruction of Israel. The United States, concerned at the growing Soviet influence in the area, had courted NASA so much that they came to view him as a CIA asset and they had welcomed the overthrow of King Farouk and encouraged anti-British and French attitudes. NASA had played both superpowers against each other, gaining Soviet weapons when the US balked at the idea. In return, the United States withdrew funding for the High Dam Project, and NASA responded during a speech in Alexandria when he used the name of the man considered the father of the canal, Ferdinand de Lesseps. It was a code word which initiated military action to seize control of the Suez Canal, implement its nationalisation and block the Gulf of Aqaba in violation of multiple agreements. Nasser immediately closed the canal to Israel. The British government was in uproar. This was seen as a direct threat to their interests and the French government immediately began meeting secretly with Israel, later inviting Britain to join negotiations aimed at regaining control of the canal. Many countries were reluctant to anger Nasser, and others, particularly Arab nations, supported the move as an admirable act of anti-imperialism. Despite the threat to Israel, the United States refused to cooperate with any intervention. The French, British and Israelis wanted Nasser out. The British position was obvious. The French held the Egyptian president responsible for assisting a rebellion in Algeria and was nervous about Nasser's growing influence in North Africa. Israel wanted to reopen the canal to its shipping and saw the opportunity to strengthen its southern border whilst weakening a dangerous and hostile state. On the 29th of October 1956, retaliation began. Ben-Gurion ordered his chief of staff to attack Egypt. However, the night before, a very secret operation took place that was intended to kill the head of the Egyptian military, called Operation Tarnagal, Hebrew for rooster. The success of this operation rested on the shoulders of one man, an Israeli fighter pilot called Yoash Sidon, nicknamed Chato. Chato was used to dangerous missions. He had been a fighter in the Palmach, an underground army of the embryonic Jewish nation. From the age of 17 and after the War of Independence, he enrolled in the first pilot training program in Israel. Trained as a combat pilot, he had made the transition to jet fighters and in 1955 was assigned to lead a squadron of night fighter all-weather aircraft using the Gloucester Meteor NF-13. At the time, Britain was the only country who would sell jet fighters to the Israeli Air Force. 
When Operation Tarnagal was devised, Chateau was in England, completing his night fighter training, but he was urgently recalled to the Israeli Air Force headquarters for a briefing, only to discover that the very next day they would be at war with Egypt. Israeli intelligence had learned that Egyptian and Syrian military chiefs were conducting talks in Damascus and that all the senior staff of the Egyptian Army, Navy and Air Force were participating, including Marshal Abdel Hakim Amar, the chief of staff of the Egyptian Army. Trusted intelligence sources had reported that the Egyptian delegation was due to return to Cairo that very night, on an Aleutian IL-14. His mission, Chateau was told, was to bring down that aircraft. The significance was obvious. If Chateau could destroy the transport aircraft, the Egyptian armed forces would be decapitated, left without a military staff and a supreme commander on the eve of a war. The outcome of the entire campaign might hinge on his success. The head of the Air Force, Colonel Shlomo Lahat, told Chateau that he should get airborne in his meteor fighter and wait overhead Damascus for the illusion to take off, and then attack. But Chateau disagreed. If he were discovered, he could be shot down, and if the target was delayed on the ground, he might run out of fuel waiting. Knowing that the IDF special units would be monitoring communications, he asked if they could advise him when the transport was 30 minutes into its flight and over the Mediterranean, in range of their radar units. He would then launch and intercept it. His commander looked at him in surprise, but eventually told him to do what he thought was best. Chateau knew it was going to be a difficult mission, so he insisted on having the best navigator he knew, Shibby Brosh. Before long, he had been flown to Ramat David Air Base, where his fighter sat waiting with Shibby, already doing the flight preparation. Night fell, and at around 10.30 the news came that their target was airborne and being tracked towards the coast. It was just inside the meteor's range and heading for Cairo at 10,000 feet. Chateau and Shibi launched into the night. All of Israel was dark and there wasn't a trace of moon in the sky. With their cockpit lights on red and turned down to a glimmer, they headed out, listening to their controller guiding them to the intercept point. Then came the first problem. Chateau's drop tanks weren't feeding into the main tanks, and just like that, they'd lost 700 litres of fuel. They were now useless dead weight, so he jettisoned them into the black ocean below. Then came Shibby's excited shout, Contact! His radar had the target only three miles away, same altitude. He called Chateau into a turn and slowly and carefully brought him in behind the illusion, but despite Chateau's keen eyesight, nothing could be seen in the inky darkness. The careful instructions continued. Eleven o'clock, seven hundred feet, descend five hundred. Then, as Chateau strained his eyes slowly, he began to make out a dark silhouette and then the faint glow of red-hot engine exhausts. Eye contact, he reported. 
His commander replied on the radio that he wanted a confirmation ID of the target. Confirm beyond a shadow of a doubt. Understood? Chateau acknowledged, and with the utmost care, as his airspeed was very low, he manoeuvred to the side of the transport until he could see into the windows. They were large and square, unique to the IL-14, and in two rows on the side of the cockpit. Once more, inside the cabin, he could see people in military uniforms walking in the aisle. He had now used up an extra ten minutes of precious fuel, but he had confirmed the identification. You're authorised to open fire, but only if you have no doubt whatsoever, came the reply. Even with his flaps down, Chateau was still very close to stalling, so he gingerly manoeuvred back behind his target, lined up the sights and fired. As his 20mm cannons bellowed, all hell broke loose. He was immediately blinded by streaks of intensely bright magnesium burning in his ammunition as it streaked away. Someone had loaded his aircraft with tracer rounds. Simultaneously, his meteor flicked onto its back and began to gyrate downwards. He was spinning. With his night vision ruined, he fought to get back onto an even keel and clamber back up. What had gone wrong? The NF-13 night fighter Meteor, with its large Westinghouse air intercept radar in the nose, left no room for the weapons there. As a consequence, the four Hispano cannons were repositioned well out on the wings, outboard of the engines and a long way from the centreline of the aircraft. When Chateau fired, the left cannons had roared into life, but on the right side they failed. Being so close to the stall, the uneven force had stalled and yawed the meteor into a spin. Clambering back up to 10,000 feet, although the illusion was now dark, Chateau could see flames coming from its left engine, and it was flying much slower when he was only a hundred feet away, even with his restricted view, Shibby in the back realised he could see both wings of the illusion. We're going to hit it, he cried. His shout probably saved them both. At the last second, Chateau squeezed the trigger again and suddenly found himself in the midst of hellfire. His shells exploded into the illusion, barely a few feet from the muzzle of the meteor's cannons. Fire engulfed the Egyptian plane, shooting across it at the same instant that an explosion transformed it into a fireball. Flaming debris flew past the meteor, and the burning Egyptian plane spun and dived, but so did the meteor. Both aircraft plunged down. A fireball and a meteor spun one beside the other, Chateau recalled, both out of control, as if performing a sickening, surreal dance. This time it took him longer to regain control, barely a thousand feet above the ocean. As he finally raised the nose, he saw the illusion smash and explode into the waves of the Mediterranean. Climbing gratefully back up away from the sea, Chato and Shibby reported their kill. His commander wanted to be sure. You saw it crash? Affirmative. It crashed. Then Chato glanced down at the fuel gauge and was horrified. 
I'm low on fuel, very low, he said. Give me directions to the closest base. A radar unit found him and gave him a heading to fly. I'll fly in that direction as long as I have fuel, Chateau replied. The meteor crew faced a dilemma. With no ejector seats, they would have to bail out manually, so would need a couple of thousand feet to be sure. Once they were below that height, if the engines ran out of fuel, they were going to have to ride the crippled aircraft into the ground. The fuel gauge dropped to zero. One minute. Two minutes. Three. Suddenly, Chateau could make out the lights of the Hatsor runway, which had been turned on for him despite the blackout. He eased down towards the tarmac and touched down. As they trundled down the runway, first one and then both engines failed, the last drop of fuel consumed. You did it? Chateau was asked. Yes, he replied. So the war has started. At headquarters, the chief of staff, Moshe Diane, was waiting for them and he looked grim. They shook hands. What's the problem? Chateau inquired. At the last minute, Amur decided not to fly on the Aleutian. He's going to take off later in a Dakota. The spirit of battle overcame Chateau. If there's time, we'll refuel and go out on a second run, he offered. And Shibi nodded in agreement. It would be too obvious and would expose our intelligence source, Diane said. Let's leave him be. The moment you wiped out the general staff, you won half the war. Diane pulled out a bottle of wine. Let's drink to the other half. Thus, the 1956 war had begun, yet only a handful knew. Operation Rooster would remain top secret for 33 years. The Egyptians never reported the downing of the aircraft, probably because they weren't aware it had been shot down and thought it an accident. On the 5th of November, the Anglo-French assault on Suez was launched. It was preceded by an aerial bombardment, which destroyed much of the Egyptian air force and grounded the rest. Soon after dawn, the British Parachute Regiment attacked El Gamil airfield, whilst French paratroopers landed south of the Raswa bridges and at Port Fouad, Within 45 minutes, all Egyptian resistance on the airfield had been overcome. Very soon, more objectives were attacked by Royal Marine Commandos, together with British and French airborne forces, supported by British tanks, which soon defeated the Egyptian forces, capturing men, vehicles, and many of the newly purchased Czech-manufactured weapons. The attack was a complete military success, and the canal was secured. Politically, however, the intervention in Suez was a disaster. US President Eisenhower was incensed. It was his belief that if the United States were seen to support the attack, the resulting backlash in the Arab world might win them over to the Soviet Union. World opinion, led by America, eventually forced Britain and France to withdraw their troops, but Israel refused without guarantees being agreed. His health shattered, facing opposition from the British people, 
and with his political credibility irrevocably damaged, Sir Anthony Eden, the British Prime Minister, resigned. The French Prime Minister survived longer despite fierce criticism, and his government finally collapsed in June. Nasser, on the other hand, would remain in power for a further 14 years until his death from a heart attack in 1970. Wow. Very dramatic. And... Hey, <laughs> was it a heart attack? When it's not your time to go, <laughs> it's not your time to go. Wow. Yeah. 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 He, uh, he, well, supposedly heart attack. He had a bit of a problem. He died quite young though. Yeah. Yeah. But then uh, again, out there in the Middle East, uh, there's all sorts of tricky things going on. You never know quite what's happening, do you? Yeah. The the Suez crisis was an absolute disaster for the UK. I mean, not not for the military. They did a great job. They did exactly what they were asked to do. But uh, I think uh, our government completely um, misinterpreted the reaction uh, that uh, the United Nations, I mean, in particular America, would have to it. Not that it made a lot of difference. But uh, at the time, um, you know, we'd had a major asset um, nationalized, um, it, you know, against all these treaties that had been um, uh, agreed to by a government that had was in power because of a military coup. I think we felt, and so did the French and the Israelis, felt justified. But the rest of the world didn't see it that way. But there you yeah. go. I think my uh, one of my favorite stories of the Suez Canal was that how uh, it was actually the British went across it first and it was supposed to be the french so the uh (laughs) yeah so it was so it opened it opened under uh french control and it was uh the the procession to go across the canal was uh headed by the imperial yacht uh, eagle and um uh, hms newport was right behind it under uh, the command of captain uh, george nares and so the night of the uh, celebration, everybody had had a great time, and uh, the crew of the Eagle had, uh, you, know, you know, they were all you know, asleep, uh, trying to sleep off all the celebration. And uh, Captain Ayers used this opportunity to go around the Eagle and then go across the canal first. And so it was the British <laughs> that went across the canal I first. I never under, knew that. Under, uh, yeah, was, under, wow. under French control. So uh, uh, there you go. That's a great yeah, story. How about that? Uh, that is great, yeah. I love it. Yeah. But it remains a very important, uh, uh, you know, marine highway. Albeit, yeah. Uh, you know, it takes one uh, big cargo ship turned sideways to block it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, I hear that uh, Evergreen uh, Logistics uh, wrote the, the manual on how to uh, properly traverse the canal. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, yes, I know. I know, but you, you even used to see huge uh, U.S. aircraft carriers go down it. I mean, I, I've seen pictures of it um the canal film a photograph from the side and all you can see is sand dunes and camels and then there's an aircraft carrier because you can't see the water if you you know get the dunes in the way and there's this aircraft carrier apparently sailing along in the middle of the desert i think it's fantastic fantastic i love it anyway a fascinating story thank you very much indeed Nick. 
Smith for bringing that to my attention. I, I'm not quite sure how uh, shooting, you know, that that goes within the rules of war of not declaring war and then shooting down <laughs> a, a, an unarmed transport. But there you go. Captain, incoming message. This is sent in by Mike and Mike Lawrence. Mike Lawrence up there in Canada. Uh, he says, uh, RNP approaches are coming to Toronto Pearson. Nav Canada has opened comments on its plans to make significant changes to the airspace around Pearson Airport in Toronto. Now, uh, Liz, if you want, you can, play, you can put that uh, overlay up um, for the uh, Pearson RNA approaches. Uh, the company intends to introduce required navigation performance authorization required RNP-AR on runway 523, one of the airport's five runways. The new system will allow tightened curved approach to approaches to both ends of the runway. The goal is to reduce noise and carbon emissions by getting aircraft on the ground more efficiently. It's not clear what impact of any of the changes will have on general aviation traffic or Georgia traffic, maybe. Uh, anyway, um, Very good. Nav Canada State. <laughs> yes, and they're specifically uh, picking on my airline, I think. Hmm. Uh, Nav Canada says the shorter and more direct routing plus the use of continuous descents will cut the noise and pollution over populated areas considerably. The reductions in greenhouse gases and noise impacts coupled with fuel cost savings for our airline customers are notable and supportive of an environmentally responsible recovery from COVID-19. Going green. Going green. Yes, Liz, so, you're right. I'm I, guessing from that uh, image, Jeff, that all those blue lines, which extend a lot more uh, downwind than these proposed uh, white track of the new approach, are the uh, current tracks, the people just going like way downwind and turning in. Yeah. Right. That's what so I'm I assuming as well. I guess they're trying to yeah. keep it much closer to the airport, which I guess is going to help. Tighter, yeah. yeah, and uh, yeah, that's that's what that's what I gather. Of course, they're just doing their part too. We're going green. green. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. These are uh, these are very uh, you know. It's, so so nowadays, not, not only do they have uh, these uh, AR approaches, which um, uh, the first time I flew a couple, of those were uh, up in the mountains of South America, particularly um, some you know. Uh, when you fly in the Andes, uh, runways up there are usually, uh, you know, straight north-south uh, because uh, you can't put a runway east-west uh, when you have uh, mountain ranges to either side and mountain peaks that uh, go up uh, upwards of 16,000 feet very close to each other. And so uh, a lot of these airports uh, only have an, an instrument uh, landing system um, to one of the uh, uh, to one of the runways, not both of them. And so uh, oftentimes... Uh, when the wind uh, um, warrants a uh, approach from the other, the opposite side, it used to be that it was uh, very hard to get uh, vectored around and uh, land in the opposite direction. And now, uh, particularly because of the topography of the area, and so uh, uh, with these uh, AR approaches, uh, you really all you really do is you just call up the procedure from the from the uh, flight management system, and then you just basically fly it. Uh, 
uh, as is. Um, all you really do is um, is uh, set the uh, the lowest uh, published altitude of the approach, um, and then uh, fly it in uh, LNAV or NAV, uh, lateral navigation, and VNAV or profile vertical navigation, and just uh, let the thing do its thing up until you uh, see the runway, and then just basically land manually. Uh, here in the United States, we have um, a new—well, not new, but uh, something that's relatively new. They—they uh, they call it descent via, where you are uh, vectored, uh, or not vector. You—you—you you basically uh, fly the unread portion of the flight until you uh, uh, enter what's called your transition, and from that transition, that's going to put you onto the first point of the arrival procedure, and then uh, uh, approach control will tell you, or not approach control, center will, uh, initially will tell you to descend via whatever um, arrival procedure you're flying. And really all you do is set the lowest altitude of that uh, arrival procedure. And the, um, the uh, points that define the procedure and the altitudes at which you have to cross each of the gates is codified into the FMC. And again, you fly the procedure on LNAV and VNAV, and that cuts down on um, radio chatter, and it uh, also streamlines the arrival procedure into the more uh, some of the uh, more uh, uh, busy uh, airports around the country here. So it's uh, it's very positive. I, I do I do like this quite a bit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it keeps noise down because uh, the aircraft is able to judge. It's just going to fly a nice steady glide path right down to that final altitude. Uh, whereas normally if you do any kind of a stepped descent, you're, the engines are going to come up as you level off, and then they're going to come back as you descend again. There's a lot more noise, a lot more fuel consumed. Whereas uh, if you can let the aircraft... Um, automatics just bring you down right from the i don't know in la it's probably around twenty thousand feet where you decide start their their arrival and you go all the way right down to uh, a few thousand a couple of thousand feet when you pick up the ils mm -hmm. uh it's so much more efficient uh you're just monitoring the system making sure it gets the altitude gates and speed changes uh correctly um and generally speaking uh, if you've got a sophisticated the system uh, in your aircraft it'll do that very well uh, and uh, it's 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 doing what the aircraft's designed for which is a problem we, you know the an air trafficker can give you heights and headings and speeds to fly but he doesn't really know uh, how to manage the energy of your aircraft whereas the aircraft itself is very good at doing that and will do so with the engines close to idle all the way down which is just what we love Exactly right, and it's and 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 for the for the airplane to do this properly, you have to make sure that you have um, updated uh, winds aloft information because the the uh, the aircraft is going to um, you know uh, f as Nick said fly that vertical profile, um, but uh, if the wind say for example you have a higher tailwind component than um, anticipated then uh, that was going to have a tendency to uh, get you a little bit high in the profile there. Now, the aircraft's going to tell you that, um, you know, the you have what's called a, 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 uh, vertical, a vertical situation indicator, which is going to tell you your the aircraft's relative position to the vertical path 
when it's right down the middle and it's right in the center point of that v, um, uh, vertical situation indicator, VSI, you know that you are you are on the correct path. And so if you have a higher tailwind component, then obviously you can start getting a little bit high on the, on the profile there. And so it's important that you are aware to uh, that uh, you have to perhaps use a little bit of speed brake to help the aircraft get back on the path there. Uh, or if, 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 the, if the headwind component is higher than anticipated, then that means that you're going to be low on the profile. So the aircraft's going to have to add power there. So it's important that you do have um, um, you know, up-to-date uh, uh, winds aloft information for the aircraft to be able to calculate the uh, uh, and and uh, follow that vertical profile with the engines as close to idle as possible, which is the whole point of this whole uh, system here. Yep, exactly. Well, very good. Can't wait to see how that uh, and impacts the flow of traffic at Toronto Pearson. Um, continuing on with the uh, number five. I've been enjoying, this is from Tom, I've been enjoying your podcast for the past couple of years. I made a donation today. He was one of the ones uh, mentioned in the uh, Uh, APG Classic uh, Fund. I wish my dad were still around. He played an important role in the early days of aircraft carrier landings. His documentation has been translated into many languages now, including Chinese. He also was a program manager at Hughes Aircraft for, among other things, things, the F-18 weapons tactic trainer. I later joined the program after his retirement as a software engineer. Uh, He had a real soft spot for our military. I think he would have tremendously enjoyed Captain Nick's plane tales. I do not know. I do not know much about flying other than landing an F-18 on an aircraft carrier using ILS (laughs) in a simulator. That's that's a fair amount. (laughs) With help from someone standing outside the cockpit. But I enjoy learning from your show, and everyone's optimism and enthusiasm is catchy. Oh, I'm also walking, I'm walking distance from Los Angeles International. My wife and I have walked to our flight a couple of times. Ha. I bicycle past the In-N-Out that you guys occasionally talk about, the In-N-Out burger. Um, Yeah. Let's see. Anyway, this donation is for Tulvio, my dad, just about the only Tulvio in the world, save the tulip slash violet hybrid that seems to have come around in the past few years. Oh, I've never heard of that, actually. Uh, But uh, again, that's Tom Durand. And thank you, Tom, for your uh, donation to the coffee fund. And um, thank you for sharing that information about your dad. Absolutely. If he was anything to do with the F-18, I have great admiration for him. Very nice. Now, I kind of wish that I could share the screen, and I'm afraid to do it because I'm afraid the bandwidth is going to go down the tubes. But this next one uh, is some feedback from Liz. You ever heard of her? Um, Let's see. Uh, It has to do, let's see, it's the uh, travelupdate.com is the source. Uh, one of the most demanding places to land in the past was Hong Kong's Kai Tech Airport. Arriving on runway 13 demanded that aircraft fly until they sighted a checkerboard painted on a hill. Then pilots took manual control, performing a right-hand turn at low altitude to reach the runway. Now, we've heard uh, Captain Nick talk about this approach and landing uh, to the uh, old airport in Hong Kong many times. 
Uh, it says buildings up to six stories high were in the area, and flights were so low that passengers could clearly see televisions on the apartments as they passed by. Since uh, the closure of the airport in, 19, in 1998, the checkerboard has been left to dereliction until now. And uh, let's see, the story goes on. I guess they must have, have a video in the in the uh, story. Um, let's see, after the closure of the airport, the checkerboard was uh, no longer needed and was left to decay. The years of weathering took its toll until it was a shadow of its former self. Happily, the powers that be decided to restore this Hong Kong landmark, which will be good news to aviation people and citizens of Hong Kong. And in the article, there's a, a couple of pictures here of this bright, spanking, brand spanking new looking checkerboard on the uh, on the hill. Um, yeah, I love that. And the fact that um, the the flat top on top of the checkerboard was where the IGS aerials were. So oh. normally you'd have aerials of an ILS, instrument landing system, at the end of your runway. Well, they had the same aerials uh, on top of the checkerboard, but it because it wasn't a, a landing system, it was just a guidance system. It was called the IGS, hmm. but basically it was an ILS that, if you continue to follow it, you smack at the top of the checkerboard. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> so before you, <laughs> just before you got there, hopefully you caught sight of it and whipped the airplane to a, a nice, neat right-hand turn and rolled out a couple hundred feet on uh, short finals for 1-3. Um, and now they've turned that area into what looks like a, um, a viewing um, platform, a viewing side because i can see a nice fence around it. i don't yeah know which which not. wasn't there before because i i was the last time i was there was uh sometime in 2018 and uh, i i set up the very top of the of the checkerboard there and actually have a couple of uh paint chips from that uh from <laughs> that checkerboard yeah at, oh wow at, uh, back home yeah so you know, just sat up there and and uh and got to look down at the you know the field below, and then you look over at uh, the I guess the remnants of uh, the old Kitech Runway One Three there. Yeah, uh, but it's just you know it, I think it's just fantastic. It's just great that uh, they've um, uh, you know restored this to its former uh, former glory. The, the hike to get up to uh, the uh, checkerboard there uh, before they uh, they they fixed it was was quite interesting because it was you, you kind of had to know how to get up there. Um, yeah. and, uh, it was quite you know, a clamber. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. And it was, uh, you'd go on, 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 you know, the, the, the way I found out, I, I, I finally made it up to the top there. I got on some, uh, some, some message board somewhere from uh, expat pilots. He would tell you, you know, when, what street to walk up and then where to make your turn and then how to get up there because it's, it's not, you know, it, it's not a, uh, a well demarcated path to get you up to the top but uh, it's uh once you get up there and you sit uh at the top of the checkerboard and you know you get a you know a commanding view of, of hong kong and then you know a beautiful view of kowloon down there and that's uh it's just that just makes me so you know the only thing is that I, I i always say i was born 50 years too late because i just <laughs> i wish um and i wish i'd uh, been able to fly those uh those approaches back in the you know the, the days of the old uh, 707s and vc10s and dc8s and stuff but uh well at least at least the checkerboard is there so that's nice and those old and a340s and too. Uh, you can see in the background uh, lion rock which is the the I think it's that. I'm pretty certain that's it because it's uh, the ridge line in the in the background is supposed to resemble a lion's head. But uh, 
Um, yeah, absolutely fabulous area. But you can see the sort of terrain. If you're heading for that checkerboard and you don't get it right, the go-around, pardon me, was very dangerous because um, ahead of you is quite a high ridge of rock. And you had to do a uh, quite a firm turn to get onto the uh, runway centerline whilst you were doing the go-around so that you turned into a safe airspace. Uh, it was always a very long and uh, careful brief for those of us um, who obviously were not based there and going there once in a while. It was uh, it was an interesting approach and uh, required a little bit of concentration after a sort of 14 or 15-hour flight. To <laughs> That's that exactly what I was going to say now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's all well and good, but, you you know, it's at the uh, at the end of a 14-hour flight after flying through Chinese airspace, no less. So um, <laughs> yes. it's quite, uh, yeah. quite taxing, I imagine. Absolutely. It was always a relief when you eventually got it down and you'd all have many a beer on your way to the hotel uh, in celebration. (laughs) We're still alive. (laughs) Yeah, I I found it was really, really interesting that I I had no idea that uh, the hotel where you guys would lay over was the same hotel we would lay over at the the Langham place. Um, Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's smart hotel, that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great, nice. great hotel. Yeah, I used to love yeah. that place. Well, Gubby says, I lived my last four months in Hong Kong in 1997 under the checkerboard. You oh, lucky okay. dog. I'm, I'm trying to sit, I'm trying to think where that you'd have been living, but uh, in a I hole suppose in, the in those little bushes and things, <laughs> yeah. Gubby. Are you skulking around there? Or? <laughs> yes, okay. he, was, he was hiding from the law, apparently. He was, yeah. he was. Um, uh, my mate, Captain Nige, used to live up on that ridge. Uh, he rented a place up there for a while with a fabulous commanding view of uh, Hong Kong. It was uh, a great spot. Blooming noisy. Yes, it would have been. <laughs> but worth it, worth it. Yeah. Yes, very much so. Oh, Osborne Barracks. Okay, well, that makes more sense. Yes, the military the rock monkeys. What are the rock monkeys? Uh, they would probably be the RAF monkeys um, and listen to rock. Oh. <laughs> no, the RAF regiment, uh, yeah. the rock apes, uh, named so because they used to have a permanent detachment okay. out there on Gibraltar, and supposedly during the Second World War, um, the tradition was that everyone was worried if the, if the uh, monkeys, the apes that lived on Gibraltar, disappeared, that the island would be taken over during the second world war and the numbers got down so it, it, i don't know it supposedly the raf regiment dressed up as monkeys and jumped around on the rock for a while I so everyone thought the, the rock apes were still yeah, there i've heard the story yeah, a <laughs> yeah bit of but ever since yeah the raf regiment which is like an infantry unit for airfield defense uh, for the for the raf um yeah were um called the rock apes very cool all right, quickly. Big hoofing apes. Okay. Do we have time, Liz, to do uh, number yeah, seven? We do. Yeah. All right. David do. sent this in, <laughs> and the source of this uh, is from BBC. Uh, Heathrow Airport, luggage conveyor belt filled with frozen fish crates. Uh, David said, something is fishy here. Passengers estimated <laughs> at least 100 crates of frozen fish arrived on the conveyor belt in Terminal 5. Now, I wish I could show you the picture here, but you'll have to look at the show notes. Um, let's see. Uh, Becca Braunholtz from Sherborne, Dorset, 
said well that good job boxes of sea bass and sea bream were delivered to terminal five of heathrow airport on monday she just landed after 2200 uh, greenwich mean time following a family holiday in cyprus british airways said it was re- reuniting customers with their bags after realizing something fishy was going on uh, the Braunholtz family traveled back to Heathrow with their family after a holiday in Cyprus. Oh, that's the caption for this photo here. A very happy-looking family. Uh, she said that when they arrived at Terminal 5 and saw the frozen fish rotating on the conveyor belt, actually boxes of fish, the fish weren't actually rotating on the <laughs> conveyor belt, but these boxes of frozen fish were, it was just the weirdest thing. She added some passengers some passengers were irate at the situation. We thought our luggage was in the second wave of deliveries, but it was just box after box of fish, she continued. And you really do need to see this photo of the uh, boxes, these bright blue boxes of frozen fish going around and all these passengers waiting for their bags. No suitcases whatsoever. (laughs) No, you know what? It it wasn't that bad because on the the carousel right next door, they had 100 boxes of chips. So. Yeah, it was just a bit embarrassing that uh, yeah. that day at Billingsgate Fish Market in London, they got all this luggage arrive. <laughs> Our special tonight is uh, yeah, tonight, some beer. Absolutely. Oh, it's funny. The crates had stickers marked for JFK Airport in the U.S. and contained a mixture of sea bass and sea bream. Uh, they were, uh, she believes, Mrs. Braunholtz believes that there were at least 100 boxes of frozen fish on the conveyor belt. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, she said that when she confronted British Airways staff about the issue, they were perplexed and did not know how it had happened. We just can't fathom why at some point one of the people loading these boxes of fish didn't think, this can't be right. For Terminal 5? It's baffling, she added. Eventually, passengers without their luggage were given claim forms and advised to go home. And eventually they did get their luggage i'm not sure about what happened to the fish that's after they got a box of fish at home Uh, yeah they they (laughs) got their luggage and a free box of fish there you go go. thank you and thank you for flying with us (laughs) (laughs) Uh, wait wait what's the thing that you say (laughs) for sea bass it wasn't and thanks for all the fish what's the the, the thing from uh, so long and thanks for all the fish Um, galaxy. Yes, exactly. Uh, so Mazuts is a longtime uh, supporter, a uh, financial supporter of our show, uh, Mazuts Kareem. He sent this quickly in. He said, uh, or I don't know how quickly he did it, but uh, we're going to quickly cover it. Hello, APG crew. Hope you're all keeping well. I'm sure that you've seen this news story about it, an ingenious way that a group of passengers use not only to choose their own destination, but also to avoid those pesky queues at immigration. Again, this is from BBC. Um, have you ever, uh, experienced, uh, or had personal experience of unusual diversions or other ruses that passengers have tried keep up the great work. And I hope that captain Jeff has a suitable heating or has suitable heating in his log cabin for the winter. I do. I hope, I don't know. We'll find out, I guess. Uh, this is, uh, Palma de Mallorca fleeing passengers shut down busy Spanish airport. Uh, one of Spain's busiest airports shut down for nearly four hours on Friday after an apparent attempt by migrants to enter the country illegally. A plane call, uh, flying from Casablanca in Morocco to Istanbul, Turkey, was diverted to Palma de Mallorca after a medical emergency was, was reported aboard. Hmm. When the jet landed, 21 passengers ran off across the runways reportedly escaping over the perimeter fence. Police later made arrests, but 12 were still on the run. 
on Saturday. Police are investigating whether the group's escape from the plane was spontaneous or an elaborate plot to uh, immigrate illegally. The top Spanish government official for the uh, Balearic Islands, uh, Ana Calvo, said the event was unprecedented for a Spanish airport. Uh, let's see. The drama began when emergency services boarded the Air Arabia Morocco plane to evacuate a Moroccan man said to have fallen into a diabetic coma. As they did so, 21 other passengers ran down the steps and fled, reportedly hiding under parked planes. Uh, after a health check at a hospital found him to be fit and well, the Moroccan man was discharged and arrested for illegally entering the country. Oh, so they maybe it, it was Oscar. a ruse. <laughs> yes, very good. A very nice performance. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's very yeah. good. Yeah. Well, joke's on them because then they're on an island. So uh... I was just going to say that. Yeah, where do they think they're going? <laughs> yeah. Well, they probably didn't know exactly where the pilots would choose to uh, divert, right? No, unless well. he was a nice pilot and told them, oh, we're diverting to <laughs> I mean, Palma But if they had planned this elaborate ruse uh, and thinking, okay, I'm going to pretend that I'm going to get sick and we wherever we divert to, you guys run for your, for your lives. Uh, but yeah. maybe they didn't know that this this would involve an island. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah. Overlooked that one detail there. Yeah. Oh dear. Um, but to, as regards uh, unusual diversions, I don't think I've had any un particularly unusual ones. But I tell you, it is frustrating trying to explain to passengers when you have diverted that they can't get off the downed airplane because the airport we got had got to is has no customs and no facilities to offload uh baggage uh so they can't just get off and go home because this is now closer to their home than the original destination uh you know they get really quite irate when they say no you're, you know i, I want to get off here and i don't want to you know Whereas we're obliged to actually take them to their destination where there will be customs and all the usual facilities uh, that you can't have at a, at a diversion airfield. So, yeah, I find that very frustrating sometimes. See, or this right to. here is why I fly a freight. <laughs> yes. Those boxes don't go running off or complaining no, about no, the diversions. They yeah, yeah, they just they just show up in the wrong carousel. That's it. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, you know what? Uh, we're getting close to that point uh, now toward the end of the show. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up and uh, stay tuned for our show next week where we're going to have some audio feedback from uh, Pilot Pip. Uh, we we'll look forward to that and uh, another uh, video. That's his audio feedback already. Oh, okay. I was wondering what that noise was. I started looking around. not... He the does heck? say it's not very good audio quality, and I've been having a bit of a joke with him, sorry, on social media, saying, uh, don't worry, Pip, we've, I listen to your podcast, we're used to your usual audio quality. <laughs> well, I listened to a little bit of it, and uh, it, didn't, it didn't sound that bad. Come on, Nick, okay. leave All the right. man alone. <laughs> cut him a break. All right, so uh, with that, uh, let's see. Let's talk about our website and uh, it's called AirlinePilotGuy.com, hmm. interestingly. And uh, there you'll find information about the crew and the community, and uh, you can find more information about each uh, episode of the Old Pilot's Plane Tales. Uh, we have the APG Library, headed by our librarian, Tiffany. We have uh, merchandise and uh, 
so much more. So check it out, airlinepilotguy.com. And we are also on social media, or what I like to call the social meds. And I know Nick's not going to take this one, so I'll just go ahead and uh, get started. Uh, <laughs> we have, uh, we're on Facebook at uh, Airline Pilot Guy, and everything uh, APG related on the Twitterverse is at APG Crew. All of us are there. And the Instagram, APG Crew, lots of really cool stuff and pictures on there. And I do believe uh, it lets back from the city to tell us all about. Uh, Slack. I don't know. Here, let me see if I can turn on the microphone in the, uh, uh, the bathroom. Oh, yeah, sure enough. I uh, hear the go. shower going. Thank you. Hey, hello. Hello, Slack. Okay, that's all right. You know, as always, just make sure you put that, uh, that robe on and cover up, please. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm going to move out of the way so you Thank can you tell us. About, yeah, thank goodness the video doesn't work for me uh, right now. Okay. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K. Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. Well, thank you very much, Hillel. As always, it's so yeah. nice that what? Washcloth is mine. I really wish you would stop moving them. Um, sorry. Okay, I don't know. We'll have to work that out after the show, you, I guess. Use them both. Yeah, just <laughs> one for the yeah, upper yeah. half, one for the lower half. <laughs> yeah, oh. Hillel's is the white one. <laughs> yes. All right, and also we'd like to uh, thank our producer Liz in Toronto, Canada. Thank you, Liz, Ray, for all your well help. Done, Liz. All right, and. Don't forget, we have, um, oh, the audience got excited there for a second. Uh, we have yeah. uh, uh, information, well, we have uh, links in our show notes to uh, reserve or book your room at the Renaissance Concourse Hotel. I still haven't gotten around to uh, making a special page on our website uh, to learn more information, but basically it's easy. on Thursday. Yeah. What's that? Oh, I can do that on Thursday, but when I'm here by myself? Um, okay. All of a sudden, we have a yeah, we have an extra day here. It's a, yeah. Uh, um, so. Anyway, uh, it's, it's very simple. Uh, just book your room. Uh, somebody had uh, written in to tell us that we were... Okay, I'm sorry. I guess my audio is just getting Uh-oh. worse and worse. Okay, hello? Hello, Jeff. Okay. Hello. Okay, well, apparently uh, they can't hear what I'm saying. I want to go again, Jeff. Hello? It's just not coming through at all, Jeff. Say again, Acme, you're unreadable. (laughs) Bye! (laughs) Okay, end the show then. (laughs) You're the bye. Apparently we're going now. Yeah, well, I guess, yep. (laughs) 
Take care, everybody. We'll see you next week. And glad we got this one over <laughs> yes. the finish line. Be good to yourself. And Just. Time. Yeah. I'm sure Jeff will fix it in post. Day. I used to be such a good, good pilot. Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall oh, I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline